Is this finishing residence? Okay. I'm not what were you answering? Yeah, okay. unless you wanted to, but I, I was going to. All right, so let me introduce myself quickly. Uh, I'm Yancey Arrington, just a little bio on me. That's why I'm uh, teaching on this one. Uh, this is my 21st year at Clear Creek. Came here when I was 26. So uh, you can just kind of do the math. I've just turned 48, so I'm, I'm kind of in one of the older guys. Uh, you can see where I went to school, got a few degrees there. Uh, I, I've been preaching, I've been here as the teaching pastor for that entire time. I uh, wrote a book last year called Preaching That Moves People. In fact, that's why I was in uh, Fort Worth for this past weekend, was doing that seminar. And uh, I've written on preaching for a, a handful of groups. Uh, so I don't know if that qualifies me to do this, but at least it's not some guy that was just random who Chad just needed at the last minute. So just maybe for that. So let me, let me tell you where this is coming from today. Um, a lot of what you're going to see here, because uh, I want to give proper attribution. Uh, when I got my doctorate, I did it at Covenant Seminary. I got to study under Brian Chapel. Uh, I, I, I like Brian's uh, book, Christ Center Preaching, probably more than any book I've ever read on uh, what you have to do or the things you got to think about in order to have a gospel-centered or, as he says, Christ-centered preaching. Uh, I, I just think it's the best. I, I haven't read every book on preaching. I've read quite a few, and uh, Brian's stuff is so good that when I got to study under him, I asked him if I could, can I just use your stuff with permission? And he's like, absolutely, answer you can. So uh, I want to make it very clear that I'm, I'm using some of his stuff and some of my doctoral stuff, uh, but I, I want to give my uh, hat tip to, to Brian. Uh, here's what I want to do. Here's how we're going to start off. In fact, let me just do this. How many of you guys, uh, how many of you guys are, uh, if we're, uh, we're functional, how many of you guys are, are planning to, uh, are planning to plant within the next three years? Okay. Most all of you, most all of you, how many of you are planning to be the primary preacher of your plant? Okay. So, uh, We'll go into this later, but I want you to uh, determine whether how, how, how well adept you are at preaching at this stage in the game. I, what I tend to find is that guys uh, who are, and I, when I say young, I don't necessarily mean chronologically young. If they're just young and starting on a church plant, they always have a very high estimation of how they are as a preacher, and then they get around other preachers and that estimation starts to drop. That was surely true for me. Uh, I want to see how at the end of this seminar, you guys would evaluate your own preaching. So with that being said, here's what I want you to do. Here's the assignment. You saw it on the screen. I kind of peeked out. Uh, so just buy your lonesome in that little gray box that you have, because I want to get jumped in. This is actually goes longer than we'd go to noon, but I, I want to kind of have some pace to this this morning to honor your time and mine. Uh, here, here's what I want you to do. I want you to draw the story of the Bible, the entire Bible that you know. Don't, you don't have to include the Apocrypha if you're not Catholic. Uh, the entire Bible in 12 images or less. I don't want you cheating. I don't want you looking off your neighbor or anything like that. Uh, but try to attempt, if you will, to draw the entire Bible, the storyline of the entire Bible, just using 12 images or less. All right? So just... Take a shot at that. I'm going to give you two, three, four, five minutes to do that just to get your brains going this morning. And I'll tell you why that's important for us to talk about. So just fire away. And I'm going to go get me a bottle of water. Don't make it too technical. I don't need any, you know, Michelangelo's. Just what's the icon? 12 steps to the story of the Bible. Sorry, man. Anything else? I don't think so. Yeah, I need fajitas. Uh, oh, well. I know they're recording this too as well. Hey, I'm drinking water right now.
You should be halfway done by now. No, I'm joking. You shouldn't be halfway done. You shouldn't. I'm going to stop you. Not now. I'm going to give you a couple more minutes. You're, you're probably not going to finish. I want to see how far along you can go. So it's not really a race, but I am curious to see who can get the furthest and then what images you choose. Try to at least get three images in. And we're going to put them on the wall and we're going to all look at everyone. So. Right, I'm going to give you one more minute. I know, don't worry about it, it's not a race. We just need to get one or two or three in. We would have done, we'd have had longer time, we started a little late. seconds and we'll, we'll close it up and I'll tell you what we'll do with it. All right, gentlemen, let's close that up. Here's what I want you to do. I got to introduce myself to y'all, but y'all didn't get to introduce yourself to me. So what I'd like to do is, uh, would you introduce, introduce yourself to me? Uh, Maybe what church you're representing or what church you're going to plan either way. And then tell me what was the first image that you had. Okay, because I want to see uh, if there's any uniformity in this. So uh, you start us off, we'll go all the way around. Just with the first image. Yeah, just the first. Tell me your name, what church you're either going to plan or where you're coming from. And then what's your first image? Okay, a son. All right, that's that's good. Thank you. Super good. Thanks, Ramon. Yes, sir. Um, John. John. Apostles Houston. Okay. Heights. Yeah. And I drew a blank box because uh, there was nothing. There's nothing there. Wow. There that's. Nothing. And then outside of it, I was like, God. Okay. So. Fairly metaphysical. I like the way that works. Very good. Ex nihilo. There you go. All right. Robert Miller, um, planter of restored passion. 
Okay. And my first image was, I guess, a picture of the fall. A picture. Of, what? What? How did? How would? What did you draw for the fall? I drew, uh, two, two uh, picture people and uh, a tree, a tree with apples on it. Okay. Super good. All right. Thanks, Robert. Carlos Austin. Um, I'm playing King of Kings Ministry. Okay. And so what I uh, what I drew was like a cloud, which represented God the Father, like a glory cloud. And under that, under that, I drew a man like Adam. Okay. Which represented unity with God. Uh, super good. All right. Thanks, Carlos. Thanks, brother. Yes, sir. Uh, Otis Lad, uh, Revived Bible Church. Um, I just said creation. An earth, okay. Uh, where, where is Revival, is Revival Bible Church? No, Revive Bible Church. R Revive Bible. Where's that at? Uh, Pearland. Okay, Pearland. All right, super good. All right, Jeremy. Jeremy Wilson uh, from Stafford Houston Northwest Church for 18 years until yesterday. So, oh, wow, man. Um, yeah, this feels a little weird. I bet. Um, Bezner kick you out? <laughs> yeah. No, I remember bumping into you there, so very good. The hey, very, that's all right, man. That's all right. Uh, so my first image was... Uh, Okay, super good. Thanks, Jeremy. Yahweh uh, Liu from Houston Chinese Church. Okay. Church planting in Pyramid. Uh huh. The first picture I draw, uh, like a moon, a sun, some trees and river. That is the creation. Okay. And it's Yahweh. Yeah. Oh man, that's a that's a, it's almost like the God name over there, Yahweh. Very good. All right, very good. Uh, nice to meet you, by the way. Yes, sir. Come on. That's all right. All right, man. Someone wanted to be by a river. I tell you that. All right, go ahead. All right. Uh, I am not sure where, when, okay. how. Yeah. Uh, but part of a small plant right now. Where? Uh, in uh, the woodlands. Okay. Okay. And uh, so I drew the earth. Okay. Super good. Yeah. And uh, I do a triangle. A, tr a trinity? Oh, man. Super. That's hyper-theological. I like it. Very good. Yes, sir. Uh, Johnny Lee with uh, Going Faith Fellowship. Okay. Uh, and I do the earth. Okay. Super good. Thanks, Johnny. Drew yeah, Drew. From yep. And I drew you drew the earth? All right. Pre or post-fall? Just curious. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm just joking. I want to make sure you get that. Free. With two people. I got you, man. All right. Uh, May, so I'm currently uh, on the Grow Groups and Discipleship staff at Faith Bridge. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, just, I don't know where, where, when I'm planting, okay. but just to kind of get my feet wet. Yeah. Uh, I drew, to the best of my poor artistic ability, uh, kind of a hillside with a river yeah. and a tree. And cool. Let me take a picture of it. No, no I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. All right. Good to have you, Max. Thanks, bud. Yes, sir. I'm Kingsley. Hi, Kingsley. Oh, okay. Very good. Um, I drew half man. Okay. With a strength. Gotcha. Display the power of God. Okay. From the beginning. Okay. Super good. Thank you, man. Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, Mac Jobay. I'm a church planning resident at Cistern Church right now. Okay. Um, and I drew an earth with the sun creation. Super good. <laughs> All right. And I'm Reed. I'm pastor at Cistern Montrose. Yeah. Reed, are you going through this right now? You're not going. Are you really? I didn't know that. I thought you were running this. All right. Uh, well, 
Let me tell you which ones are right and which ones are wrong. No, I'm not going to do that. Uh, so the, the reason I do this is uh, I want to build off this idea that, and I, 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 I don't want this to sound like I would guilt trip anybody or make someone feel bad. My conviction is this. Uh, at some point, it's going to sound like, what does this have to do with preaching? If you can't draw the story of the Bible within 12 frames or less, it's going to be hard for you to actually preach the Bible the way God wanted you to preach it. Okay? So if your children's ministry can't do this, you probably need to train them. If your student ministry can't do this, you probably need to train them. If you can't do this, you definitely need training. Because what I'm convinced of, uh, and what this whole series, uh, excuse me, this whole seminar is going to build around is this. The Bible's one book telling one story about one king coming to redeem through the cross one people, and eventually creation itself. And that's why I'm really not as concerned about what your first image is, although if it was something like, you know, Moses coming down with the tablets, I might be concerned that you've missed all of Genesis. Uh, but I, I, I am concerned about you getting this. The book is the story. One book, one story. Uh, in, in fact, uh, one of my favorite theologians out there, a guy named Michael Horton, said this. He said, uh, the Bible's big story doesn't make a point. It is the point. Uh, I, I completely concur with that. The Bible's big story doesn't make a point. It is the point of the whole entire deal. So the critical part of this, and you'll have to forgive me, guys, because I only have till about noon. Um, and again, this seminar goes a little bit actually longer than that. I'll try to speed it up because I want to have you guys to interact and, and be able to. And you can interrupt me at any point, by the way, guys. Um, let me kind of lay some foundational stuff here. That one story ultimately finds its satisfaction in one person and work. In other words, uh, Jesus and the cross, also known as the gospel. Uh, and, and that's not just something that Yancey Arrington thinks is good, although I do, uh, or that I think is cute, or it's, it just really works out in the preaching event. I think this is exactly what uh, Jesus and his followers taught, uh, believed. If you'll take like the Apostle Paul, all right? So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2 says this, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, uh, anyone want to tell me, uh, think about that for a second. So Paul's writing that to the church at Corinth. What do you guys know about the church at Corinth? What, what issues did, did Paul address at Corinth off the top of your head? Division, Division? yeah. What else? If, if, I'm sorry? Carnality, yeah. Carnality, yeah. Incest, yeah. You have, uh, you basically have a, a son with his mother-in-law, so that's probably, you know, that's, that sounds like a Mari Povich show. What else? Spiritual gifts. What else? Caring for the poor. Someone else said something over here. Resurrection, yeah. That whole 1 Corinthians 15 that you all preached on. Someone preached this Easter. I did. Uh, what else? What are other th topics that you saw addressed in 1 Corinthians? Meet lawsuits. Yeah. How do you, so if you could, if you could, um, if you could get in the head of Paul as a, and say, listen, Paul, we don't preach like that. We're 21st century planners. We do series. We don't, we, we do series, bro. You need to turn that into a series. What kind of series topics would you have? Give me some kind of really, it can even be cheesy for all I care. Cause sometimes most of them are, uh, do what? Love a series on love. Just the, the love chapter. Right. Uh, I don't know what you could say, like, uh, the kind of sex you shouldn't have. That'd be a great topic. Hey, the people would show up. Uh, then you could talk about, hey, we're saying don't do incest. Oh, that was an easy one, Pastor. I don't have to do that one. Uh, you could talk, you could do a series on uh, unlocking your gifts. Talk about spiritual gifts. Uh, you could do a series on 
uh, how the you know how the body works out, which is simply his deal on using those gifts in ministry. You can do all kinds of things. And here's what I think is interesting. So you look at 1 Corinthians and you recognize Paul spent at least two to three years, if I understand correctly, scholarship tells us two to three years at, um, at Corinth. In other words, he spent more time at Corinth, if I understand correctly, than any other church plant he was at because of Corinth was such a, it was the Las Vegas of the ancient Near East. Uh, and he had a lot of problems with him, so he had to do a lot of teaching. What other teachers did we see there in Corinth? Apollos. In fact, they, had, they, had, they were team teaching. What? I thought it was one pastor, one church. Uh, I don't know where, who read that because Paul didn't do that model. Paul had multiple teachers. We at least know two of them there. And we're not, not talking like I had a main teacher and I had some guy teaching Sunday school. He had two primary teachers, it looks like, Paul and Apollos. How do you know that they were influential? What? Yeah, there was like, dude, my favorite guy is this dude, right? Oh, my favorite guy is Paul. No, I, I like to hit up Apollos. When he, I like to call it, like, is, is Paul preaching today? I don't know. I just want Apollos. When's he doing the service, right? So they had all kinds of stuff going on, some good, some bad. But here's what I think is amazing to me. When you look at when Paul, now this is obviously written after he spent time at Corinth. He writes his first letter to them. We don't have the second letter. It's been lost. We have the third letter, which we call 2 Corinthians. But in the first letter, he's just summing up his time there. So he's, you know by the content of his letter, he talked about all kinds of things. And yet, how does he summarize his preaching ministry? I didn't do anything but preach Jesus and him crucified. That ought to tell you something. He summarizes his whole preach. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. And not just Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, this is the, the framing of the gospel with Jesus. Not Jesus' moral model or some kind of helpful self-help teacher, but a Jesus who needed to die and rise again. And so everything I taught, whether it was marriage, whether it was uh, spiritual gifts, whether it was serving in the body, whether it was lawsuits, it all funders, uh, falls under the ultimate umbrella of Jesus and the cross. So somehow, Paul preached in such a way where he could address a ton of different issues, but he did it via the cross. He did it via the gospel. So that ought to tell you something about, whoa, what is my preaching like? And this isn't just Paul. I mean, listen to Jesus here, right? Luke 24. Someone give me the context. Y'all see the scripture up there. Um, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. What's the context of Luke 24? Yeah, road to Emmaus. So what's going on with the road? To, what has just happened right before the road to Emmaus? What's Luke 23 and 22 about? I, I know it's, it feels like it's a pop quiz. It really shouldn't be. Yeah, crucifixion, resurrection. Right? So uh, what's going down on the Emmaus road in Luke 24? Who do we have going down the Emmaus road? Yeah. Well, we actually, we're not too sure what their names are, although scholars do have a... How many people do we have? At least two guys, two dudes walking. How, what's their emotional uh, makeup right now? Yeah, they're, 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 they're just down. Why? Because their Savior uh, is still in the grave, at least in their mind's eye. So Jesus rolls up, right? He's got on his uh, Jesus camouflage because they don't know who he is. They don't recognize him, which it's a mystery to scholars. And he walks with them. And they're like, yo, why are you so, he's like, why are you so sad? And they're like, well, you know, this Jesus guy we were following, he died and they crucified him right outside of uh, Jerusalem right here. And we're just taking off. It's probably not a good time for us to be around Jerusalem, being his followers and all, but he just is dead. And so what does Jesus do? Here's what I think is amazing to me. Jesus pulls out his pocket Old Testament that he had, uh, he got off of the heavens, you know, door before he came back. And he's like, let me, and he rolls out his pocket Old Testament and he says this, or it says this in Luke 24. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Now, what does that tell you? What's Moses and the prophets a reference to? 
Yeah, it's, it's a reference actually to, the, Moses is, is actually a reference to the Pentateuch, the five scrolls, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, uh, and actually got expanded to about everything else. But frankly, how they would consider is this is the law and the prophets, which basically meant the whole Bible up to them, right? Now, in, in Hebrew, it's, orderly, it's ordered different than it is in our English. But for us, for all, this is, he went through Genesis to Malachi, right? Or the Italian prophet Malachi, whatever you like. I call him Malachi, right? So, in beginning with the Bible, so what I would say, in beginning with Genesis and ending in Malachi, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning what? Himself. Jesus thought the Bible was about himself. Uh, remember what he says to the Pharisees and Sadducees? You search the scriptures in order to find life, but I tell you the truth, these scriptures, what? They testify to me. So Jesus thought that the sum and substance of the Bible wasn't just a bunch of different behaviors that you're supposed to import to make you a better person in suburbia, but actually to be somewhat conformed to the gospel kingdom that he's bringing through the work of the cross that he's the Lord of. So so if, if the scripture is supposed to testify to him, then you ought to preach in such... Here's what I'm going to try to do today. I want you to preach like Jesus read the Bible. And here's what's even more amazing to me. Jesus is with these two, uh, these two followers. They're desperate to know who Jesus is. And Jesus never is like, look, it's me. He says a Bible and says, look, it's me. Isn't that amazing? He's physically with them. All he has to do is say, look, man, I'm here. Don't, no, don't worry. He never does that. He just gives them the scriptures and says, look, I'm here. Jesus, I don't know exactly why he does that, but it's sure helpful for us because you don't have to have Jesus physically present to show people Jesus. You just have to preach the scriptures in the way Jesus read the scriptures. All right. And so I'm convinced, I'm convinced that we don't do that very well in preaching. I sure didn't do it very well. And so uh, Jesus thought the Bible was all about himself. Paul thought the Bible was all about Jesus. And so here's why we do it this way. So this is what's basically called biblical theology. Biblical theology is the discipline of Bible interpretation that emphasizes the overarching themes that unite all of Scripture's particulars. So I know a lot of people talk about systematic theology. My, 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 my doctoral dissertations on systematic theology which is awesome. Uh, it's kind of like a microscope. Systematic theology is where you study one subject like prayer and you see it all the way through the Bible. And so you're just trying to get as deep as you can on that subject. A, um, a biblical theology is different. Uh, a biblical theology asks how it's all connected together. So in other words, uh, I'll give you this one. Biblical theology is not simply asking what truth does this particular passage reveal, but how it's related to the whole uh, message of Scripture. So I said... Systematics like a magnifying glass. How many of you know what a fish in a fisheye lens is? It's what it's what it's what churches put on their cameras to make it look like there's a lot of people there and they have a big building. A fisheye lens expands the horizons of what you're viewing. And so it takes it and just expands it so you can see from horizon to horizon. That's what biblical theology does. It's like, let's take the start of the scriptures and its story, and let's go to the conclusion of the scriptures and its story, and let's see if we can find anything that unites it. So uh, let, me, let me give you an explanation of how that applies to the Bible, and ergo, therefore, you're preaching. Uh, Genesis 3.15. A lot of people think that John 3.16 is kind of the, I, mean, I don't know if the guy, he used to do it a long time ago, but in the 80s, and I'm a child of the 80s, like the kids and Stranger Things are exactly the same age I was at that time, so I'm, I'm just an old guy, unapologetically an old dude from the 80s. But when you, we used to watch football, there used to be a cat... Every time someone kicked a field goal, usually it's like the Philadelphia Eagles, he'd hold up a sign, and what would it say? It'd say, John 3.16. Every time. And I don't know how that guy got tickets, but it was always in the end zone. And every time someone kicked a field goal, he'd show that he was the John 3.16 guy. And if you ask a lot of people, 
Christians, like what's the theme verse of the Bible? It'd say something like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. You guys know it. It's a great verse. Don't get me wrong. I don't think that's the theme verse of the Bible. I think it's this. And I'll tell you why. Someone want to give me the context of Genesis 3, 15? What's going on here? Who's talking? Who's he talking to? What's the situation? Oh, someone said fall. Yep. So it's the fall. Correct. Genesis 3 is the fall. Who's talking? God's talking to whom? He's talking to Satan, right? So this is what's known as the curse. But it's not just a curse. It's a prophecy. It's a promise. All right? So here's what he says. I will put enmity, which is, what's, what's enmity mean? Yeah, strife, hatred, struggle, warfare, if you will. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. All right, so I would argue, by the way, that's when you, when you read the rest of Genesis, that's exactly how that flows out. There's always two lines. There's a righteous line, a righteous line of Eve, and an unrighteous line of Satan. How do you know? How, where, where do you see the first break? First kids they have. Cain and Abel, right? And so notice what happens to the line of, uh, we have a replacement with Seth, and I get all that stuff. But if you look through the different lines, you see two different trajectories, right? And so imagine this. Satan gets this promised prophecy from God that there's going to come someone who's going to crush your head. And notice what happens. They have two kids, and one kills the other one as if we're going to crush the lion from the very beginning. By the way, that really is the story of the rest of the Bible. What happens to Joseph? You'll go even go down all the way to Joseph. Joseph gets run around by whom? His brothers. Where do they send him off to? Egypt. Why does that turn out well for, for Israel in the end? Sorry? Yeah, he comes in charge. But why is that handy is he, that he comes in charge? What, what, what does the end of that story deal with? The family. This is the righteous line. But they're going to go extinct. Why? Because there's this famine that's coming, right? But what happens is that God always providentially rescues his own family. He rescues the righteous line. That's not just him. Guess what else happens? It happens to a bigger family. When Israel, excuse me, when, when, when um, uh, uh, it's Abraham, then Abraham begins to become a clan with a whole bunch of family. They become like a, a bigger family than a clan. By the time they become a nation, guess what, where they are? They're in Egypt, right? Who wants to extinguish them ultimately? Pharaoh does, but God's always rescuing his family because he's going to make sure this promise comes through. What's the end terminus? What's the, actually the end, that's the same thing. What's the terminus of this person? It's someone who's going to do this, going to, Bruised the head of the serpent. We obviously know him as Jesus. So what I would argue is, and you guys, many of you guys probably already know this, Genesis 3.15 is known by scholars as called the Proto-Evangelion. Right, proto means first, like prototype, the first type, Pro-Evangelion, the gospel. This is known as the first gospel. So what I, what's amazing to me is you don't, the, the paint's not even wet, excuse me, the paint's not even dry, I should say, on the universe. Uh, and even in the midst of the fall, we have a promise. That someone's going to come and rescue somebody else. By the way, you already see that in Adam and Eve. What happens to Adam and Eve when they find themselves naked? What does God do? He kills an animal and clothes them. Already showing you what he's going to do, but ultimately not an animal, but with his own son. So, here's the argument I would say. John 3.16 is not the theme verse of the Bible. It's Genesis 3.15. Because everything is about this. A coming king who will crush the head of the serpent. A coming king who will crush the head of the serpent. In every story... Is connected to that one story. Every story underneath. So, for example, the images here, and this is completely a lift from chapel, so I want to give them credit, obviously. Uh, Adam and Eve, what's the rainbow? What really is the rainbow recognized? It's not LGBT stuff. It's actually... <laughs> it's, we, 
The Bible got props on that a lot earlier, right? So, right, the, the flood. What's the ladder? Jacob's ladder, which is interesting that he puts that in there as one of his movements. But, I mean, not that it's not significant or insignificant, but, you know, I'd, I'd take this one over that one. So, obviously, the giving of the law. What's the crown? Yeah, the kings, right? So he kind of makes this real short. You have the cross of Jesus. What does that stand for? The ascension. The ascension, the church, his return. The point is, don't get lost in the icons. It's to understand this. The whole entire Bible, those don't make any sense in and of themselves. At least they're not supposed to if they don't have this as its banner. Everything's flowing out of this. And my argument is, if you're not preaching the Bible the same way, you're not preaching the Bible the way God wants you to preach it. That's going to be a challenge. Because this is the gospel. And these things don't mean jack without the gospel. So with that being said, uh, all of history is the unfolding of this story. All of it's the unfolding of that one story. Uh, so what is chief in the story of the Bible then? Is it the giving of the law? No. Is it the kings? No. Is, it's that Jesus has come to redeem us and rescue us, and not just us, but ultimately all of creation itself. The serpent gets crushed. So let me give you some characteristics of biblical theology before we move on with how does this affect preaching. Uh, number one, uh, because we're, when I say biblical theology, I'm talking about a theology that, that includes the whole story of the Bible. Number one, it's progressive. Revelation is a long series of successive acts in history whereby God reveals more of himself and his plan. Uh, I would draw this, but they took, that, they took the uh, marker board here. So let, let me think. Let me ask you this. So who would know more about God's plan, uh, Paul or Samson? Why? Why would the Apostle Paul, and that's, that's the correct answer, why would the Apostle Paul more know, uh, know more about God's uh, plan for rolling out, if you will, how the serpent's going to be crushed by the head of the Savior than Samson? He does. How do you know that? More special revelation, more things revealed. So, I mean, draw this however you want to. Here's how I think of progressive. I think of a, of a cone, if you will, where it starts out small, and the further you get, the bigger it gets. So, for example, Moses knows more than Abraham. David knows more than Abraham. What did Abraham know about God's plan? What are the things that he knew? I'll make you a people. And what else? Yeah, what's the, how he gets a promise. I'll make you a people and, like, leave Ur. All right, where are we going? Where are we going? I don't, I'm not telling you right now. Okay, so what am I going to do? I'm not telling you right now. I'm going to make you a people. Dude, I'm 80. Yeah, I'm going to make you a people, right? All he has is really a promise. He's got this much of the cone, right? But what more do we know about God's revelation of who he is and the kingdom when we get to David? What are some things that David knew, had, that Abraham didn't? Oh, this is easy. Well, yes, that, that's true, an enduring seed. Yeah, now we have a nation. He has the law of Moses, so he's got the law. Now he's got a moral law. Abraham didn't have that. He'd do whatever he wanted to, apparently. So now you've got the law, right? Uh, so the law, what else do we have? What else do we know about God's kingdom in David that Abraham never knew? I just said it. It's a kingdom. David happens to be a king, if you didn't know. So uh, he talks about a coming king who's going to sit on an everlasting throne. Abraham didn't have any of that kind of stuff. So we have, uh, what else do we have? We have a temple. They didn't have a temple with Abraham. They had a temple. They had sacrifices, the whole Levitical law. They had a ton of different things. And all those things point ultimately to Jesus. But what I'm trying to help you understand is 
It's progressive. Let me tell you why that's important. Because when you preach those different things, if you don't preach them, if you preach them in a way like they all had a, a knowledge of what's going on because we're 21st century Christians, that's not really the right way to preach that. I'll show you a good way to do it. Number two, it's organic. God's revelation may be in seed form, which yields full growth later. I'll tell you about that here in a second. And ultimately, it's redemptive. It's redemptive. Revelation is the interpretation of redemption. Well, let me tell you what that means. God would not give it in the Bible if he didn't want you to know it, and it didn't ultimately uh, move towards redemption. Like, God's plan is to redeem. Anything he puts in the Bible is ultimately about redemption. Uh, let, me tell you, let me tell you why that's important. God didn't write the Bible so you could have a better marriage. God didn't write the Bible so that you can know how to handle your finances. God didn't write the Bible so you can know how to parent your children. Now, the Bible addresses those things, but they're not the primary the primary is revelation that's interpreted of redemption. God's trying to redeem all things through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, that redemption affects your marriage and affects your finances, but that's not the primary teaching of the text. What's the text about? About Christ and Him crucified. Okay? So, again, I, I, someone may ask later on, so you don't ever preach about those things? You do. You preach them well, though. You preach them in context. You don't make those things the hero. You make Jesus the hero. Okay? Let me give you something about organic. Let me tell you why that's, that's kind of helpful here. When I say God's revelation may be in seed form, which yields full growth later. Uh, okay, how many of you ever, I don't know if they even did this anymore now that I'm so old. Uh, did y'all ever have to do like, um, by the way, if y'all ever need to just use the restroom or whatever, get up and leave and don't, you don't have to be like, let's wait till Yancey takes a break because everyone's bladder is a different size. So um, did y'all ever have to do show and tell when you were little? Anyone have to do show and tell? All right, so I did. What if, what if your show and tell... Uh, was an acorn. You brought an acorn to class, and all you're going to do is just describe the acorn. All right? So if you, just by looking at it, you can't, there's no more description than you can do by what you can look at. So what would you say about an acorn? It's, all right, guys, I brought, you know, I brought an acorn today, and here's what it, and only, you can only describe to people what it looks like. What would you say about it? It's small. It's hard. It's a nut with a helmet. Okay. Well, it's, it's brown, it's round, okay. Now, if you said, that's an acorn, and you walked off, why would that be incomplete? Like that, so that's what an acorn is, folks, I'm gone. Why would your teacher like, but that's not what an acorn is. What else would you need to tell me? It's going to be a tree. This is a seed, right? But you don't see that, like, you don't see the tree right away. It's an organic thing. I ought to put this bad boy in the ground. In fact, that it's round and brown and small is not even that significant. It's significant that when I put it in the ground, it becomes an oak tree. So, so here, here's, here's why I say that. The Bible is much like an acorn. It grows over time. And some stories that we preach out of the Old Testament are primarily basically gospel stories in seed form. And if we don't tell people what those seeds are actually going to be in Christ, then we're really not telling them the story. So if you're talking about Abraham's sacrifice of his son Isaac, and you're talking about this is what a good dad looks like, you're missing the point. If you're looking at David talking about um, fighting Goliath, and it's really ultimately about you conquering your enemies, you're missing the point. Because all of those are stories that ultimately terminate in the personal work of Jesus. Because Jesus would come back to you and say, by the way, you think these stories are about you? No, they testify to me. That's what Jesus would tell us. So, so Jesus would school us a little bit if we preach like that. Now, just so you know, I did preach like that, and that's the kind of stuff I want to fix. 
I'm really passionate about this kind of stuff because there was a place in my career, probably 10 years in in my ministry, where I was like, you know what? I'm not even satisfied with the way I'm preaching here. I believe in the centrality of the gospel, but I'm not too sure it's, it, it's uh, those roots of alcohol sunk into my preaching ministry. And so uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that here later on. I'll give you some of my own revelation. Uh, so this now, now that we got that in our head, here's what gospel-centered preaching is. It's the recognition of all Scripture as one unfolding history of God's redeeming work of grace. So all you're doing, man, is you're just showing people throughout the Scriptures how this one story bears itself out. And it's multidimensional. You can talk about a million different things. But ultimately, you're talking about this story of Jesus being redeeming us in his grace. And you're showing that revelation of all persons, events, and teachings to the revelation. Excuse me. That's not right. Not revelation. Oh, excuse me. This should say the relation. Sorry. Y'all need to fix that if it's not correct on your notes. It's, oh, see, this is where I fixed it in my notes, but I'm so lazy I can't fix it on the screen. It's the relating or the relation of all. Do I have relation or relating on your notes? All right, it's the relation of all. So anytime you're talking about a person or event or a teaching to the rest, so you're trying to tie it all ultimately to what is known in Jesus. That's all you're trying to do. So what I'm going to argue later on is you can talk about marriage. You can talk about finance. You can talk about parenting. Awesome. Ultimately, you've got to talk about how it relates to the kingdom of God and Jesus. That's what you've got to do. So, uh, and I'll tell you, like, I don't see anyone doing that. Uh, that's, overst- that's a preaching overstatement. I see few people doing that. But it's growing. More people are. All right, therefore... In order to preach the Bible well, we should not simply ask what, this, what truth does this particular passage reveal, but how it's related to the big story of Scripture. That's huge. Go get it. So when you're opening up your text that you're going to study for your sermon, you're not just asking, if, particularly if it's in the Old Testament, all right, David and Goliath, David and Goliath. So what is this? David beats Goliath. Oh, sweet. So this is about us beating our, 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 our giants. No, 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 no. What you ought to also ask is, how is this related to the big story of Scripture? Like, why did Jesus put this Bible, excuse me, why did God put this story here? Is it because I didn't know how to handle my giants? No, maybe there's a bigger story there. So let me tell you what it doesn't mean, because I want to make sure that you guys hit me here. Our goal is not to make Christ, this is good, our goal is not to make Christ, excuse me, our goal is not to make every passage mention Christ, but to show where every passage stands in relation to the grace ultimately revealed in Christ. In other words, what you don't want to do is you're not, you're not, you know, remember origami where you take a sheet of paper and you can make it like to a butterfly or a bunny? And you're like, oh, I never saw that there. That's what some guys do when they hear this. They're like, man, I'm going to make Jesus everywhere. Like, yo, Jesus is the ark because it's made out of wood and the cross is made out of wood. And they had to nail that ark. So, you know, they had to nail Jesus. So you're, you're in the Jesus boat now. And then they got to they got to find something where he bleeds. Like, you know, I'm sure there was something trailing in the waters. That was like his blood. And you don't you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. That that's kind of like that's kind of like preaching origami. It's like, look, a bird. And. <laughs> And no one saw that there. Like, if no one saw that there, it's probably because it's not there. Um, now, that's the kind of preaching that happened along in the, in the Middle Ages, in the medieval, it's called medieval mysticism, where you just tried to make everything about Jesus, but it was just a cheap parlor trick. It's just with smoke and mirrors and lights and, uh, you know, behind every rock's Jesus. You really don't have to do that. In fact, this is why I so highly recommend uh, uh, Brian Chappell's stuff, because I think he does this in a way that's got some integrity to it. So I'm going to call you to preach Jesus. I don't want you to try to manufacture Jesus in ways that are fake. Because uh, if you do that, it's, it doesn't, it's not really true. And it makes you look like you're some mystical guy that can read the Bible in a way that no one else can. So I don't want you to do that. Yeah. Question. Yeah. And I'm really loving this, man. Sure. Sure. And I've heard where people said, like, the ark. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. That 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 is somewhat of a representation, if you will, of Christ. Yeah. Um, and I, I think what I'm hearing from you is there's no connection there. Yeah. So what I would say, and that's a really let me let me let me be specific and distinct about what I'm talking about. I'm not saying there can't be an impulse where God rescues people using uh, a means outside of themselves, the ark, in order to save them. That's what God does. That really is an immer, uh, marriage, excuse me, that is a, it's an aroma of what leads up to Jesus. So it's, it's a pattern, if you will. What I'm talking about is when people get very detailed and say, no, it, you, it's so easy to see this as Jesus because they just start making stuff up. Like it's made out of wood. It's, it's got this. And so uh, it's like when Jesus, uh, when they struck, uh, I'm trying to think of something else where it'd be like, Jesus is the, Jacob went up a ladder to heaven, but Jesus is the real ladder because, you know, he had stripes and, you know, a ladder's got stripes on it. It's like, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. I do think when you talk about, I think that door may be, oh, it's not locked. Okay. I do think you can talk about, there's an impulse in that when we see uh, God rescuing people via an ark, that just shows us that God saves us by grace. Ah, he's a grace saving God that ultimately shows us in Jesus who is the true, you know, he's the true and better ark. I think you can do that. I just don't think you can trick it out. That's really what I'm saying. When you start making these app, you know, A, A, B, B, C, C, ah, it seems like it's a little far-fetched to me. But it makes you look like you're this erudite, brilliant preacher. It's like, wow, I never saw that. How did he see that? I'm like, because it ain't there. <laughs> that's, that's, why he, that's why you didn't see it. And you didn't see it. And hey, how many of y'all saw that? Oh, no one did? Hey, maybe because it's not there, right? That's different than saying the ark shows us kind of a blueprint of how God works. He comes to rescue us out of our, you know, you could still do that. That's different than saying, uh, how did y'all not see this was Jesus? It's made out of wood. I really have to do preach that. It's made out of wood. You got to put holes in. How the holes get in? You got to hammer it. And Jesus is like, no, dude, it's, it's okay, man. It's all right. We get it. Um, you don't have to have Jesus as the wood to say that this is an echo of how God saves people. You could just do that. All right. That's a great question. Great question. All right. Here's what I like what Brian says about this. Christ-centered preaching, rightly understood, doesn't seek to, excuse me, does not seek to discover where Christ is mentioned in every text. So you're not trying to look for Jesus everywhere. Like, what is he mentioned here, mentioned there? but to discover where every text stands in relation to Christ. That's so big. So here's the deal. The burden on you is not to find Jesus everywhere. It's to say, how does this story ultimately stand in the, in the, in the grand story? That's all you're trying to do. How, why is Jonah here? Right? Why is David and Goliath here? Right? And, and it, why is it here in that it's moving this ultimate story forward? How does this story of David, and we'll get into this in more detail, how does David facing Goliath ultimately show us a movement towards why Jesus is a better David? Uh, that, to me, is way different than most of what I hear preached. So, what does this mean? I told you what it doesn't mean. What does it mean? Here's what it means. It means that since all the Scripture is ultimately redemptive in nature, like there's not a passage in there that's not ultimately helpful for redemption, that's include, that includes Leviticus, by the way, guys. Um, as a matter of fact, I preached uh, six or seven weeks through Leviticus, one of my favorite series I've ever done. <clears throat> Since all Scripture is ultimately redemptive in nature, we must recognize in some way that every passage points not only to our need of redemption, but to God's provision for our redemption. So go back to the ark. How do we see that this ultimately points to our need for redemption? So like you're preaching uh, through different passages, specifically uh, uh, in the Old Testament. It's not even that you have to say Jesus all the time, but you might show them, look at the pattern. We always seem to have a need to be redeemed, and God somehow redeems us. That's all throughout the Bible, right? Why? Because God's showing you that ultimately he's going to redeem us all through Jesus. 
We all need, we all have a need of redemption and God has a provision for that. How does that happen? By works or by grace? That's the answer, by grace. You don't have to think very long about that. So, so that ought to tell you how we ought to preach as well. We ought to make sure that we have a lot of grace in how we preach. In other words, that we're showing in our preaching that God's the hero and we're not the hero. I'll show you what that means. That's going to screw up a lot of preaching right there. Just that statement. So here's what text can be. Uh, any text you find, one t- a text may be predictive of the work of Christ. Where in the Bible would we see any texts that are predictive of the work of Jesus? Yeah, the prophets, Isaiah 20, the, all that stuff. Uh, preparatory for the work of Christ. Um, this is, let, me, let me kind of explain that one and see if you can get this one. What are books that I would read or passages I would read in the Old Testament that would make me want to get to Jesus? Like, I really need, man, if this is, I need to have Jesus for this to, you know, if I, after reading this, I, I know that I need a Savior. What are some things that would um, prepare your heart for the goodness of the gospel? The law. The law. All right, that's it. That was actually my illustration. The law. Anywhere in the law... Uh, that ought to be preparatory. So we don't want to just preach. So if you're preaching the law, just as if it's a law. So if you're doing the Ten Commandments and you're saying, you know what, guys, don't commit adultery. We're done. Let's pray. Um, But you're not showing how Jesus calls all of us adulterers if we lust in our heart. Thus we need like, oh, crap, I can't really obey the law like he wants me to. I need someone who's obeyed the law for me. That's why the law ultimately is given. I mean, what does Galatians say? It's a tutor unto Christ. So might want to preach it that way. All right, three, reflective of the work of Christ. This is the majority of sermons. This is like um, reflects on what Jesus has done for you. Um, or the same thing, uh, that's kind of the gospel accounts. We're reflecting on his life. Resulting of the work of Christ. What are texts in the scripture, obviously New Testament, that would say because Jesus has done this, this is true of you now? I mean, it's all the, frankly, all the New Testament. But anything, what, what are some verses that would stand out to you that say, because of Jesus' work on the cross, this is now true of you? What, well, I was going to have you quote it, but you don't have to do all three chapters. Uh, what in those chapters would say, this is true now because of what Jesus has done? There you go. There you go. Romans 8.1. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Well, dude, yeah, maybe you got them all. You, you have that whole passage memorized? Come on, bro. Let's go. We just stopped class. I'll let you recite it. That's worth it. Uh, Jeremy, Romans 8.1. Yeah, no there, no con- there is therefore now no condemnation. That, dude, that thing, you don't even have to work on that one. You just, let, just read it and you've preached it. Uh, it's resultant of the work of Christ. Here's the point. There's not anywhere in the Bible from Genesis 1.1 all the way to the back end of Revelation that's not, one of these aren't true. So you, you can get to Jesus without faking it, without being cheap about it, and be real about it. And so uh, let, me, let me do this. Now, I spent a lot of money on this special effect. So y'all just be in awe. I went to, I think, uh, Lucasfilm, uh, Skywalker Ranch. Yeah. So you're trying to say that, must, okay, let me ask, must they all appear at once? All those four? Yes. No, 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 no. Any one of them. Any, any one of them. Yeah. Any, well, they, they can't really all appear at once because if one's resultant, that, that can only apply to New Testament passages after Jesus' death and resurrection because they are a resultant of his work. It's hard to find any of those in the Old Testament. I'm just saying any, any passage is going to have at least one of those four, uh, and, and usually just one of the four. But it's just to show you that any passage in the Bible, you can get to Jesus. You can show how good God is in, the, in his work of grace. So here's what the Bible's not. There you go. See all those flames? That's a lot of money. Uh, there you go. Thanks. Y'all can slow clap later. Here, here's, here's, where I get on my, here's where I get on my preaching stump right here when I'm with preachers. The Bible is not a self-help book. 
uh, it's not a, so, uh, let me tell you why that's important, guys, uh, and I want to talk to you now as planters, because you guys are the future of the church uh, in North America, specifically around the Houston area, minus San Marcos, uh, but we'll, we'll include just in Texas, um, there's a scourge of preaching in North America, uh, which really makes the Bible all about us and not the way Jesus would preach it. I don't think that's, uh, I don't think it's intentional. I think it's probably a product of our consumerism, our narcissism, and then the fact that we're just a nation of rich young rulers. Um, like the hardest people that can ever get into the kingdom. Uh, and so we feel like we got to preach that way to reach those people. What happens is, you know, whatever you get someone with, you got to keep them with. And so why this is dangerous because I think we get taught this, uh, again, well-meaning, like right? yeah, the Bible's here to help us, right? We want to make it practical. I hear that all the time. It's practical preaching. What that really means, it's, it's this. So uh, if, for those of you that come maybe from a reform background, or at least you know a little bit about church reformation in the 16th century, uh, there were the five solas of the reformation. The reason that you're probably not a Catholic and that you are a Protestant is probably due to one of these reasons that are important. There are the solas. Can anyone tell me what... Some of those are, or one. So yeah, sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. So we're not about, uh, you know, tradition may be important. It doesn't super, uh, doesn't circumvent scripture. Scripture as authority is the only authority. So scripture alone. Sola scriptura, what's the other one? Sola fide, yeah. Faith alone, we're saved by faith alone, which is, which is tied to sola gratia. They're all tied together. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola Christus, Christ alone. What's that last one? Sola Dea Gloria, to God alone. To glory to God alone, all right? So. When you preach the Bible like this, you actually add a sixth sola. It's called sola bootstrappa. <laughs> you preach in such a way that you're asking people to pull themselves up by their, by their own bootstraps. What happens is this. I don't think pastors mean to preach this way because if they knew the kind of damage they were doing, they wouldn't. But unintentionally, well-meaning, I got a lot of my friends that are doing this. Uh, they preach in such a way that makes the Bible about the listener and here's what they need to do in order to get right with God. And what they hear is, oh, shoot, if I do these things, God will make me happy. Excuse me. Uh, let me repeat that. Uh, reset that. When I do these things, God will be happy with what I'm doing, and thus he will accept me because of it. And what happens is, is it makes earning central to the message, not grace. Not what God has done, but what they've got to do. Uh, now, these are popular sermons because you're telling people practical things to do. And I'm not against, you'll hear later on, practical things that they need to do. But that's all they hear, and they think, oh, the Bible then is about, it's, a, it, it's, it's kind of an Aesop's fable for Christians. There's moral stories that tell me one thing I need to do to be a better person. And so if I have a healthy marriage, if I have good finances, if I have great kids, wow, I must be in the middle of God's kingdom. When they could be just narcissistic consumers that are, you've just made into better rich young rulers. It's like you use the Bible so they don't really need Jesus in the end. They've already figured it out themselves. They pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, and they'll love you for it. Because those are the kind of sermons that actually have legs to them for people in their heart. Because everyone just wants to earn, ultimately. They don't want to be someone they have to submit to. They want to earn. That's why our hearts are broken, as Luther said. Broken by the law. Calvin said the same thing. Um, so what happens is I'm going to argue that these kind of sermons, they're not just um, sub-Christian sermons. I'm going to say they're anti-Christian sermons. So like you got Christian pastors, well-meaning, every Sunday preaching anti-Christian sermons because this context essentially is just be good and God will be happy with you. That's wrong. That is, uh, that's what broke me. Uh, you know, we, we, you know a, a little bit of our story. You know, we're here at Clear Creek Community Church. This is my church. Again, I've been here 21 years. Um, 
you know, we are a mega church and those come with, you know, highs and lows, pros and cons. And one of the things we didn't want to do uh, is that we did not want to preach in a way where um, if you're preaching a sermon that your local Mormon church can preach, then you ain't preaching Jesus. If you're preaching a sermon that they literally could take and preach the same thing, you're not preaching a Christian sermon. What happens is when I hear a lot of sermons, they look just like it's like an Oprah or a Dr. Phil show with a little bit of scripture in it and Jesus kind of at a footnote. Uh, and, and what happens with that is, man, that, that's just so far from what the gospel is. It's embarrassing. So uh, <clears throat> there was a, excuse me, <clears throat> we have teen teachers, as I tell you. So Bruce Wesley is our lead pastor. You guys know him. He's the founder of Houston Church Planning Network. The way he and I preach here is we rotate roughly 50-50. I might get a shade or two more, but pretty much 50-50. Uh, and it's, it's not technically 50-50 because we'll have other people preach like our campus pastors six, seven times a year. All right, that's just how we do it. You don't have to like it. That's just how we do it. Um, but what we do is if you preach at our church, after you preach, you get evaluated. And so about 10 years ago, one of our, t- this is awesome because I, I don't have to single the person out. One of our guys was preaching a sermon that, that everyone was loving it because it's super practical and it's all these things you need to do. And then after the first service, and this is stuff that God had been messing with me in my own heart about it. Like, man, I don't, I don't want to be, you know, some consumeristic guy. I want to just follow Jesus and preach the gospel. So God had been messing with me in my own heart about it. This guy preaches this sermon and uh, everyone's loving it because it's super practical. And he walks in after the first service. And we, again, we do eval after every first service. If you happen to be there, you can just eval it. So I was there. He goes, what did you think? I'm like, man, here's what I liked about it. But I got to tell you, I think Oprah could have preached that and would have been no different. I said, that, what, what is that different than what I'd see on the Oprah Winfrey show or the Dr. Phil show? And I'm like, I, I'm struggling because I don't know where Jesus is in that. And uh, now let, let me just tell you why, a couple of reasons how I got to that point. One, I probably would have never said that just had it be any other Sunday, but because God had been messing with me uh, with my own preaching that I just, it was one of those things where I'd like to think it was a little bit prophetic uh, only because the guy received it. Like I, I, I agree. Like, just like, hold on, spent 10 more minutes, changed up his sermon was, you know, was very clear about the gospel. And then we just started to have conversations like, man, maybe this, we, we just can't afford to do that. And, and we looked like at all of our old sermons and we didn't see a bunch of it, but every once in a while I'd be like, Oh man, that, where was Jesus in that? So what I try to tell people like, you know, what, why did Jesus have to die for that sermon? That's what I say now. So when you write a sermon, you hand me that manuscript, I'm like, tell me why Jesus had to die for that. And if you don't know how and why he had to die for that, you don't have a Christian sermon. So, because Jesus has to die for that to, for it to count. Because why? The whole Bible is about him crushing the head of the serpent. And if you're not showing me somewhere in there why that's true, mm, I don't know if you're really giving me the gospel. You're not giving me Jesus. And you may not be reading or preaching the Bible like Jesus read and preached. So I felt convicted about it. And I thought, you know, we got we to gotta, we gotta fix that. And uh, what was cool is our team was like, yo, let's, let's not. Again, I don't think it's intentional. I don't think anyone. We all want to love Jesus. Here's the deal. I'd rather, I'd rather have this conversation with you guys now so that you don't get 10 years down the road like we did. And we're like, full stop. Let's make sure that we're doing what we're doing is honoring Jesus. Do it now. And so, uh, you know, you're welcome. So you can, because I, I don't want you to have to do this, right? And some of you come from churches where you guys already know this, but I'm just telling you, man, uh, this kind of preaching really grows churches fast. But really what it does is it just gets crowds. Uh, it just gets crowds. The difference between having a crowd and having a congregation. Okay, that's just a crowd. Because when you're, when you're not dropping that science anymore, they're going to leave you like you were nothing. They'll just go to the next church that's doing the same thing. 
So when you go to your church planning conferences or your fast growth church conferences, this is the kind of stuff a lot they push because it's the, it's the magic. It's, it's just the potion they put out in the water and you drink it and everyone likes it. But I'm telling you, man, I question whether it's really about Jesus in the end. So what happens is this. Do we take, here's the question I'm going to have you guys, and I'm going to start to work now like with what a real sermon would be like. Do we take a gospel-centered, redemptive-oriented approach, which is what we should do, to preaching the Bible, or are we actually doing something less? Let me give you a difference. So I'm going to move this out of the way. I want to show you the difference, and we're going to take a sermon out of Jonah, okay? An example of a non-gospel-centered sermon crafting, right? So the story of Jonah. Y'all are familiar with it, right? <clears throat> it's a very easy text to preach, story to preach, if... And by the way, this is a real sermon that I'm going to break down. So if this was like close to your sermon, I'm sorry. All right. You're like, oh, I just preached that this weekend. Well, preach it again, but better. All right. Here we're going to. So, you know, the story of Jonah. And so true story. This is a true message. God gave us the story of Jonah at the end of it. Tell me the story of Jonah, right? Jonah's a prophet. What does God tell him to do? Why does he not want to go? He hates Ninevites. You know why he hates Ninevites? Because the Ninevites are the Assyrians. They're the enemy. These are the same people when you read in the Old Testament and actually in ancient history, when the Israelites were wounded, these people were so vicious, they would get on these kind of things that looked like tractors. Oh, they didn't have tractors. And they would have this, these poles that would stick out with metal and knives and stones, and they would just run over their enemies that were wounded, often Israelites. This would be equivalent to um, a Jewish prophet in uh, the 20th century uh, during World War II, being asked to go preach to the Nazis. So now you've got to feel the emotion that has to go through. Like, everyone wants to hate on Jonah, but he's got some real reasons why he doesn't want to go do this. These are the people that hate me, all right? Antebellum South, you can do the same thing, right? This would be go to preach to your slave masters if you were an African-American. You would never want to do that, right? That's the kind of emotion that's going on with Jonah, and no one ever gets that. It's like, give him some compassion, man, because he hates those people because they hate his people. And now he's like, God, why are you sending me to the people that are our enemies? You should crush those people, right? That's what's going on there. But here's what happens. We take some story that's that, that, that's that complex, and we'll boil it down to something that's what? An easy, practical to do. Obey as quickly as you can, okay? Now, should we obey as quickly as we can? Sure we should, right? Now, how did you get that out of Jonah? What part of Jonah says obey as quickly as you can? Well, yeah, God will throw you overboard, man. He'll throw you overboard. If you don't do what he says, he'll throw your tail overboard. So here's the point. Obey God and your pastor and your small group. Sorry, it's so small. Couldn't put another L in it. And your small group leader and your boss. And so now you get to preach forever. It's like, oh, man. So here's what happened. You didn't really take the story and go up with it. You just moralized it. You moralized it as if God said, you know what, I don't think people know that they should obey me quickly. So I'm going to have Jonah be a real prophet. I'm going to throw him overboard because I really need to help people understand they should obey as soon as possible. You just cheapened the story of the text. So what I tell people is you went down, you should have gone up. Go up with the story. So here's what it looks like. So so here's how people like do preaching sermons and sermon series. So they'll take this. Great story of the text of Scripture, primarily out of the Old Testament. They'll find one moral to-do for it, or maybe a lot of them. And but I always say, well, ask some questions here. Is this the point of the book of Jonah? This God's like, was God like, yo, man, I need that story because people don't obey fast. Why did God put the story in the Bible? That's always a great question to ask. Take any story that you want to preach and go, why did God put this in the Bible? And if it's your point out of that, you think, did God put it in for this real point? Eh. 
How does this fit in the overall message of redemption? See, that changes everything when you go up with it, because now you're asking this question. How does this story fit into the big story? And that changes everything. What happens is we go down with it, we get this simplistic moral application. All you're doing is doing bumper sticker theology. You're doing something like, this is short, memorable, and those aren't necessarily bad things, but it's like, "Eh, have you really gotten the essence of the text? Have you gotten to Jesus? I'd say, no, think of it this way. Go up with the big story and see what happens. Uh, Tie it to the work of Genesis 3.15, if you will, 3.16, I should say, which is, again, the Proto-Evangelion. Let me give you a quote. This is a little dense quote, but I like it. So what happens is people want to take all these people like David and Jonah and Solomon and whatever, Samson, and they want to make him like our moral guides and heroes. Here's the problem with that. Now watch this. I'm going to read this. I know it's a little, a little, it's a lot of text, but it's really good. Ed Clowney, this guy's a study, says this, without the structure of biblical history. So if you don't use the big story, here's what happens. Uh, it becomes a chaotic jumble. And the Bible basically, it means little in the lives of, uh, excuse me, without this structure, biblical history becomes a chaotic jumble and little in the lives of biblical characters. It seems either relevant to our lives or worthy of imitation. So in other words, what he's saying is like, if you're just going to make it about be like these people, there's so little about those people that you really want to emulate. To those who find only collected moral tales in the Bible, they're constantly embarrassed by the good deeds of the patriarchs, judges, and kings. Surely we can't pattern our daily conduct of that of Samuel as he hews Agag into pieces or Samson as he commits suicide, or Jeremiah as he preaches treason. Judged by our usual ethics, Michael was quite right in despising David's performance before the ark, and Judas, he's white, he was right in criticizing the extravagance of Mary's use of perfume in Bethany. Dreadful consequences have ensued when blindness to the history of Revelation was coupled with the courage to follow misunderstood examples. Heretics have been hewed in pieces in the name of Christ and in precatory psalms, Sung on the battlefield. Can I just tell you exactly what he's trying to say there? Anytime you use a person of the Bible to say he's our model, you're going to be embarrassed by that guy later on. If you actually look at like, I'm always amazed when we do vacation Bible school, we make people like David and all these other people our heroes. I'm like, which are you going to do the David that commits adultery? Where's that poster on the wall? You do the David that, that sold out his best friend and murdered him. Where does that get on the, what, where's, where's that workshop in the craft that you take home? Right? Oh, we're going to do a little binocular so we can see our spouses, our friend's spouse naked, bathing. Are we going to do that? That's going to be, I might show up for that one. It's like, yeah. So, like, you can't moralize those stories because there's not a lot of morals to teach. What we do is we cherry pick it. We're not even being honest with ourselves. We're definitely not being honest with the stories of the Bible. Because the stories, of the, just so you, the Bible takes great God through the person of his spirit, writing through the authors of these texts of scripture, took great pains to dirty the image of every guy you could possibly find on there. So you would just know in the end, as Hebrews tells us, there's only one hero, not a lot. Right? What's the heroic text that we see? We call it the great hall of fame faith. Hebrews what? Hebrews 11. If you just look at the people he uses on there, man, you got a drunkard who's having incest with his kids. Where is that on the, where's that on the, the VeggieTales video? Right? Where you got, you got uh, a bastard child who, I mean, we could just go on forever. And yet, notice the conclusion of Hebrews. It doesn't say looking to them, it says looking to him, author and finisher of our faith. They're, they may be in the room, but you're looking to Jesus. Why? They're not heroes. That's why they're heroes by faith, if you will. It's only faith in the one who's been a hero for us. That's what you want to preach the Bible as. That doesn't mean that you can't see heroic things in David or Samson or other people, but it doesn't mean that you can't make, you just don't make them the hero, 
all right? Because you, you wind up with some really weird stuff if you get into the depths of it. So here's what happens. In the end, here's what happens. Uh, here's how a lot of people do sermon series. They'll be like, yo, let's teach on, um, let's teach on parenting. And we're going to find a Bible story, a Bible story. We're going to find four Bible stories that talk about parenting, that show examples of how to, so we'll talk about Abraham being a parent with his son, Isaac. We're going to talk about, uh, you know, whoever else we could find in the Bible, right? You can do it about anything. And what happens is you take this moral application out of each story, like love your kids, uh, take care of them, protect them, show them what's right and wrong, and boom, like everyone's going to come and listen to you because you've got practical things to say as if they couldn't get that from a book downstairs uh, at Barnes & Noble. Right? As if their kids aren't hearing the same thing on Sesame Street, because they are. But what you've done is you've just Sesame Streeted the Bible. And you took Jesus out of it. And you're like, now you're the heroes. So now I want you to hear this really practical sermon about you do these four things to be a better parent. Notice how practical the Bible is, and it's all about you. Here's what happens. How then, if that's the kind of preaching you get... Right, with these simple moralistic applications for congregation, work hard, give money, love spouse, just look at sermon series and you'll see that stuff. And again, you can still do that, you just got to do them correctly, I'll show you how. But if, 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 you're, if you're doing it this way, what is, how does that, what do people grow up thinking the Bible is if they're a part of that congregation over 10 years? I'm sorry, self-help, right? What else? The Bible's about me? Man-centered, yep. Sorry? Just rules? Yeah. What story? Jesus? It's like, um, like, here's the Bible, and this part's about Jesus. The rest of it's about me, right? Um, develops their own narcissism. It makes them further rich young rulers. It doesn't really make them sacrifice. It just reinforces. It's the genie in the bottle. You just rub it, and it gives you whatever you want. Even the Jesus part. It's just what he did just for me. Yeah. He did it just for me. He died just for me. Uh, it makes us individualistic. Nothing about the New Testament concept of community, and so. Man, I'm so glad you said that because that to me is exa- so. Here's what happens. That's why you have people that come into your ministry with their kids, and then when their kids graduate, they graduate from your congregation too. All they want you to do is just to train up little Sesame Street kids with Jesus. That's all they want. Can you Dr. Phil or Oprah that kid enough that, hey, have some kind of moral sense to them so they won't do the really bad things when they leave. So when they leave, they don't only just leave the church, they leave Jesus. They just wanted to use him in the first place. So they just prostituted Jesus. They haven't really, they just, they're just saying, listen, I just need you to be a, I just need you to be my kid's moral guide until he's old enough. And then really when he's done, he ain't going to care about you at all anyhow, Jesus. So really, you don't want Jesus. You're just using Jesus. So, uh, That's what I, I, Paul, Paul Washer says that we um, spend time entertaining goats instead of caring for sheep. Yeah, I mean, there's some, I, I think there's, there's, there's truth to that. I, I think people really, I think that the people in our church uh, genuinely do care about Jesus. It's really up to, the burden is on the pastors as their teachers to say, this is what following Jesus looks like and here's what it doesn't look like. What happens is our preaching, unbeknownst to us a lot, is actually doing, is counter the, what we really want to happen, our preaching countering that. It's, doing the, it's, the, it's almost the antidote to the gospel if there ever could be one. It's kind of like, I want to give you a false gospel, although I, I'm thinking it's pretty good because we want people to read the Bible, right? But we, we so sauce it up 
and make it uh, palatable to them that in the end, it's not really, the, it's kind of like an inoculation. They get just enough of the real thing that they never catch the real thing. So the danger is, as you were saying, is like, yeah, so what they'll do is they'll say, you know, the Bible, when you, when you ask people, like, what is the, what's, no, it's okay. That's all right. Don't worry about it. Uh, no, no, no biggie. Thanks. For, it's no big deal. Um, here's what happens. Oh, man, I got to hustle, too. What happens when they leave, not only will they leave the church, they'll think the Bible's just a bunch of stories, just a bunch of random stories to teach you. It's the Aesop's Book of Fable for Christians is what they're going to do. The Bible's not going to have. That's why they don't read it when they leave, because they're not amazed by Jesus by it. What they should do is read the Bible in such a way that they walk out going, Jesus is a very great Savior, and I'm a very great sinner. And they, they, should, be, they should be more amazed about Jesus by it. Yeah, did you have a question? Yeah, so I have two questions. Well, kind of two different examples the same question. Yeah. Every message must get to the gospel, and I, obviously I believe that Christian read the Bible that way. Um, but let's take two different examples. So let's take the Book of Proverbs, just a simple yeah. kind of here's a, a wisdom statement. Yeah. Um, so I would take that. Let's say saying, here's God's good. I put that in like God's good design narrative. Okay. Like, here's how God designed the world to work. Yeah. This is how it is. Yeah. You and I should live this way, but we haven't. Therefore, Jesus lives perfectly this way. Yeah. Therefore, by faith, we can live like Jesus does. Yeah. Do you think, A, is that appropriate? B, are there multiple paths to Jesus yes. in, a, in, in a story that, yeah. that are Christianly appropriate? Sure. Um, yes and yes. I think yes. I think yes, what you said was appropriate. You also could argue that Jesus is the greatest wisdom. He's the embodiment of everything that the Psalms want to be. Jesus emulates perfectly. Jesus is wise for us when we're not wise. Uh, but yes, there are other ways to do that. I, I don't think it has to be mechanical. I don't think it has to be like, well, I've got to do Proverbs. I have to do it this way. I think there's creative ways to do it. But uh, if you're just going to preach Proverbs as a bunch of, uh, as essentially what I've just taught, just a bunch of life lessons, then you're, you're missing the greater context. Did God give that like, man, these guys just are foolish. I need them to be wise. But I don't really need him to think about this in light of my kingdom. I, I, I just think you've got to give it con. I'll, I'll get to that later on. But yes, I, yes and yes to what you've said. There's, just, there's creative ways to do that with all of it. I, I don't think you have to get to Jesus dying on a cross. Like one guy, when I asked my professor one time, I was like, do I have to say Jesus? Like in every sermon, he goes, well, you don't have to. Why would you not? I'm like, well, I'm not saying I wouldn't. I'm just saying, could I still talk about God's grace and that, you know, give gospel elements so that people understand when they leave, they're not the hero, but God is. He's like, oh, absolutely. Uh, although, Yancey, I think you'll find yourself talking about Jesus a whole lot. I'm like, well, I, I think I will too. Uh, but I do think there's some, I think later on in this, hopefully that'll answer your question even more. But yes, there's a, there's a broad, uh, tons of ways to get down the mountain uh, on this one. I'll wait till the end. Yeah, sure, please. No, but I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that's helpful. And I'll tell you why. That's the Baptist way to do things. 
All right. So I'm not knocking. I grew up Southern Baptist. Uh, I mean, my, go look at all my degrees, all but two of them. Um, all but one of them is a Southern Baptist degree. I have a lot of love for the Southern Baptist, so it's not a knock. But that is their, that, that is their weakness. The, the heart, the good heart behind it is that Jesus, they, they want people to get to Jesus. The problem is they preach in such ways that like you really don't need Jesus except for heaven. The sermon has nothing to do with Jesus has everything to do with you. Oh, but by the way, if you want to get to heaven, uh, here's an invitation. Come down the front, fill out a card, and we'll get you into heaven. That's embarrassing. Uh, and I've preached many of those sermons. It's like you're saying, Jesus isn't necessary for you to live this out. He's only necessary for you to get to heaven. And uh, when you footnote Jesus at the end of your sermon, all you've said is he's a footnote. He's not the main character. And I don't, I don't want to preach like that anymore. So, I mean, my, my Southern Baptist in the room might, might take umbrage with that. That is how it has been in my experience. Uh, that's how I was trained and taught. And I'm not against invitationalism uh, generally. I'm, 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 uh, I just don't want to. If the only time you hear about Jesus is at the end when it's over, you've already told me what you think about him in the sermon. Come on. And actually, you know, I'm, a, I'm still a fairly a new preacher. Yeah. But the Lord revealed that same concept to me in Luke 24, whereas Jesus was right there. So the message was titled, Why Don't We See Jesus? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and you know, throughout all of it, you know, it just shows <clears throat> me. I start studying because I'm intrigued with people falling away and the decline of the church. Dang right. So I study that and see how can we stop falling away? What can we do as believers? Come on. And the Lord showed me that some people are falling away because they don't have a foundation. I'm, I'm they go to with church, you. church, they hear the word. Yeah. Some have, like the word says, tickling ears. They hear so yeah. So I, I, I find a lot of people go to church, they, they go in with their biases. They want to hear an encouraging word that will help them get through the week. Yep. But at the same time, they go years and years and they really don't know God. Oh, man. They really aren't getting to know him personally. And yep. realize that he came to redeem them. Absolutely. Not just Israel, because that's what the people thought. In, yep. In Right. Yeah. 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 So people are focused on getting their situation to change. Yep. You know, because um, our, where we're planting is a middle to low class uh, economics, and 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 people are looking for situations to change, mm-hmm. but at the same time they're not looking to God. Yeah. I, so here's what I would say. Is your preaching is either going to push people more towards Jesus or, frankly, it's going to push people. It's, here's, here's the irony. You can preach in such a way where you're actually pushing people away from the Jesus of the Scriptures. And, and instead of just kind of like, it's either Jesus' kind of suburban model, Jesus' moral helper, Jesus is the life coach, Jesus is all these things. And you only, you only ping him as Savior probably twice, two or three times a year, Christmas, Easter maybe. Um, or in your invitation, which kind of really makes it weird, like Jesus isn't used for much in life. And so when your kids are old enough, they're not going to need Jesus because they'll say, well, I'm going to heaven. Why do I need Jesus? That's because they listened to your preaching for 20 years. And uh, they, that's all they got from it. So here's what I'm talking to you guys. Don't be that dude. Be the guy that when they leave, they're like, I'll tell you who the king is. It's Jesus, and I need to stay close to him. Why? Well, because my pastor opened up a Bible and said, here's Christ. You do that now. Uh, I'll give you a story at the end where it's kind of my whole heartbeat for this. But um, did you have a question, sir? Correct. Because, man, That's know, exactly as, right. As a pastor, I'm like, man, why? You know, me and my wife, we kind of like, man, we all in. We, <clears throat> we're like, what's 
But it, it's apparently clear, it's like, because Mark 10, 45 says, I came not to be served, not to serve, not to be served, but, but to serve, serve yeah. and give, sacrifice yeah. and service. When you preach Christ, that's what you get. And yeah. so people just start doing ministry organically. They do it because mm -hmm. now they see it. So I'd say this. Uh, I, I, Tim Keller once said, uh, I don't know if it was unique to him, he said, all preaching is doxological. What he meant by that is all preaching ultimately ends in praise because you're really preaching to the heart. I think when you preach Jesus the way that Jesus, I would think, wants us to in the Scriptures, it actually is more inspirational to your people. They may get uh, a ton of practical things, but it's not like they've never heard that before. What I tell people is like, we're in the most informationally saturated society in the history of the world. You don't need a preacher to tell you how to run your kids. Go to runyourkids.org. I'm sure it's there, right? Or how to have a healthy family. Or listen to Brene Brown. Or go to doctor. Do all those things, right? And I'm not even saying those things are unhelpful. They may have some great life wisdom. That's not necessarily the kingdom, right? And so the kingdom is about a king who's come to do for me what I couldn't do for myself. And I'm so overwhelmed by the grace that he gives that it makes me want to sacrifice all for him. That's what it makes it sound like when Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That's like the opposite of suburbia, which is, uh, I, I need to stop preaching. Here we go. So, my, my, uh, yes, sir. Uh-huh. And how do you balance the two of them? Because there are people who comes with them, their needs and everything, and they want to see a change. And I'm a firm believer that this change comes over time. Okay. And you're not entitled to any promise that well, if I come to the church seek, I must get healed. Right. You know, but it comes with time. Yep. But a couple of people are not patient enough to wait for that. And so you start a church, two years down the line, mm -hmm. your congregation is still where it is. Yeah. And you start a church with the other seven, mm -hmm. one year down the line, you have a great congregation. So how do you balance that? Well, what, what I try to do is I, I'm convinced that when you preach the gospel, it it, the confrontation is not necessarily bad. I mean, you look at Jesus. He didn't mind running people off either. So um, he was okay. For example, with the rich young ruler, he didn't go like, hold on, guy, come on back. Let me talk to you some more. He's like, all right, if you, if you don't want me for me, then you don't want me. Uh, I, I don't think that we are trying to be intentionally confrontational when we preach. I think what we're tr simply trying to say is this is who Jesus is. And because he is who he is, he's lovely, he's appealing, he's wonderful, he's the master, he's the king. And you ought to want to follow him just for those reasons, uh, not the least of which is that he comes to save. Uh, but if you just want to live your life without having Jesus as your Lord, I can't help you. Um, I, I do think we can be patient with people. That's why I want to preach Jesus every week, because it, people need that kind of exposure to that kind of preaching on a weekly basis. So it starts to overcome some of their own fears, some of their own challenges. I mean, what the scripture says, uh, no man builds a tower unless he first considers the cost. So I want to preach in such a way that you're actually getting to consider the real cost of following Jesus. What I don't want to do is preach this kind of watered down, cheesy, cheap grace gospel that no one really has to, that you don't have to count a cost for. It's like, oh, sweet. These are all just things I put in my shopping cart and I'm going to go up to the front and like, ching, ching. All right, sweet. And if this pays off, awesome. And if it doesn't, see you later, church. Now, that's really what I'm fighting for. So I don't know if there's a balance outside of, I want to consistently preach in such a way where uh, I'm getting people right before Jesus. Now, uh, I, I, if you'll give me a little bit of time, I'll show you 
do you ever preach about practical things? And I, I want you to know, yes, you do. But I would also argue that the kingdom of Jesus is eminently practical. Uh, but let me move on a little further and we'll see if, if this can help answer some of your questions. Let me, let me get back to this for a second. So this is how I think a lot of preaching happens. We, we pull out like truths that we want or truisms, and we find stories that justify it. Uh, I got a buddy of mine, most of you guys know who he is, Matt Chandler is a friend of Acts 29, friend of Clear Creek, a friend of mine. Uh, I hope this audio doesn't blow us out because I can't control it. So if it's a little loud, maybe you want to plug yours, I don't know. But uh, here's what he had to say about this very same thing. So be ready, and I'll, I'll quit it if it's not. Oh, sorry, sorry. I got to do it over again because I, I was scared myself. All right, let's see if this goes. It won't start. It's just him at this. Avoid silly myths, but now we can handle that. Train your people in godliness. Now the reason I say this is complex is because you can take one idea and teach it in such a way that's irreverent and silly, or take one idea and teach it in such a way that leads to godliness. Let me give you an example. So we're in a recession. I think they've officially declared that. And, and so he, here's the nightmare that's Dallas. All right, there you okay? go. Y'all listen to this. All over Dallas, creative teams get together, and they go, we're going to, you know, we've got ourselves a recession here. We want to talk about uh, debt. We're going to teach our people about debt. And so we've entitled the series, Debt is Dumb. All right? So here's what I need. Worship guy, go write me a song on Debt is Dumb. Communication <coughs> team, I need you to draw up something that after they leave here, they'll continually remember Debt is Dumb. I've written a sermon. Here's why debt is dumb. Debt is dumb because it puts stress on your marriage. Debt is dumb because it puts stress on your happiness. And debt is dumb because if you get into too much of it, somebody's going to come take your car and house. Then you'll be homeless. Break. And everybody goes. Then on Sunday morning, somebody walks up on stage and, and they lead in the song. All right? If you have $4 and you spent 7 that's dumb. All right? They, they lead their song. And, and then the pastor walks up on stage, and he gets behind, probably on a pulpit, probably a um, stool, and, and says... I, I use a stool. <laughs> I use a stool. <laughs> and, and they do the sermon. Hey, hey guys, if... Listen, here's the problem with that. When you get a lot of debt, you're not happy. Are you guys happy? Of course you're not happy. You're not happy because you have debt. Point two is your marriage difficult. Let me tell you why your marriage is difficult. Marriage is difficult because you got debt. And when you got debt, it brings all this pressure in your marriage. And then, that, then that's what happens. It's bad. And then, and then listen, you want to be homeless? I don't think you want to be homeless. You want to be homeless? You want, do you want your mom to drive you around? You're 30 years old. Forget to say, is that what you want? Of course you don't. See how, how much God wants you? He's telling you, debt is dumb. Now on your way out tonight, we have a bumper sticker that says debt is dumb. And we have little bracelets so that all week long you might be reminded that debt is dumb. And our ministry in this community is going to be to let them know that debt is dumb. Father. We're going to do the bleakers debt is dumb song one more time. Stay with me, alright? Debt is dumb, debt is dumb. And then you dismiss. Well, that's Christless expounding on nothing. So, okay, now let's see. I'm not against topical preaching as long as it's done exegetically. <laughs> I'm saying that you have an opportunity to take some, well, how about this? How about we do this? 
How about we stand in our pulpits and say, by the cross of Christ socially, I have been set free from the sin of arrogant hierarchy seeking and saved to humility and seeking the lower seat. That in Christ and his cross, materially, I have been set free from grasping and finding my identity in things and saved to using God's creation properly and giving away money and things to advance his kingdom further. Okay, see what happened there? One is training in godliness. The other is irreverent, silly myths. Paul's pleading with Timothy, train your people in godliness, which means the gospel is ever-present. The doctrine is ever-present. It reveals the former errors. All right. So why, hearing what Matt had to say, would this be... Why is this a critical problem or issue to address in preaching? What he just said, the examples that he gave, which I thought was hilarious about, we're going to talk about debt. Debt is dumb. <laughs> Why is this a critical problem? We've been talking about it. Just what stands out to you about after you hear that? It's about being man-centered. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's all reflective around Yeah, yeah. So every week people are coming to your churches, right? And you guys are going to plant, and I hope every one of you plants a church that's awesome and, you know, makes an impact for the kingdom. And that Houston becomes one of those places where we see some turn for the kingdom in North America uh, and for the world for that matter. But every week people are going to come to your church plants, going to come to your churches, going to hear you preach. And, um, and they're going to go to other churches that are plants right next to you guys. And they're going to be double and tripling the people coming to it. And they're going to be coming to that because they're going to be listening to a bunch of how-tos, a bunch of game show stuff, a little bit of motocross in there, and some lights and color and flashes and drops. Okay? And it's going to bring crowds, but it won't be a congregation. Those people are going to leave thinking that God is about the rules and being moral. Uh, and what they've gotten is not the gospel. They're just going to get religion. All right? Southern fried, Texas-style religion. And it's going to make their churches big, and it's going to make them popular, and it's going to put pressure on you to want to sell out. Don't sell out. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's none of that. that that's, just, that's just fool's gold. Um, you know, don't, don't let the Bible that you preach become, again, a, a book of virtues or Aesop's fables with, with every character trying to be nice and loving. Here's what you ought to do when you preach Jonah. You ought to preach Jonah that Jonah, Jonah God called Jonah, because in, in the stage of this story, he's really an embodiment of Israel. Israel was being persecuted by their enemies. And God called Jonah to want to minister and tell the truth and share the gospel with his enemies. And he didn't want to do that. Israel didn't want to do that. It's just Israel. Israel was rebellious. What was Israel called to be in the light of history? They were called to be a light to the world. They were called to share it with the, the nations, the Gentiles, right? Um, and they wouldn't do it. Jonah is just an embodiment of what Israel was at that time. They wanted to hold it to me. So what does what God do? He's like, I'm going to have you preach to your enemy the gospel. And what happens? What happens when Jonah preaches it? They repent, right? And what happens with Jonah? He's pissed. That's not the VeggieTale ending. We're singing a song. And it, no, he's like mad, right? And, uh, and so the end of Jonah is, are you going to be like that, Israel? Because here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring one up out of Israel who will also die for his enemies. His name is Jesus. And he will die for the people that hate him as well. And that is you. 
So Jesus is a better Jonah, right? Now, when you preach it like that, that changes everything. That actually feels like a sermon that's going to have some weight to it. So instead of saying like David and Goliath is, which I hear all the time, you know, David is the, you know, you need to be like David. You need to defeat uh, an enemy, the enemies of your, the Goliaths of your life. So you just take up your rocks and whatever they are. And if you defeat being poor, you can defeat your rebellious kid. You can defeat, you know, I don't know, you're, you're too heavy. I don't know what the deal is. But here's what's interesting when you actually read the text, right? The text really does point to something, a bigger story. If you go up with the story with Jonah and with David and Goliath, what is it about? What, who does God pick in David? What kind of person is he at this stage in the game? Yeah, he's studying his word. But what does he look like? He's a little runt. He's the runt. He's the, he's the dog you don't pick up at the pound because you're like, I don't think he's going to live past tomorrow. And God's like, oh, give me that guy. And David knows that. So what does Saul try to do with David? What's, yeah, hey, take my armor, chief. I'm a king. Take my armor. And David's like, I, don't, I, don't, I can't do that. Why? He says, I do something. I come in the name of the Lord. So in other words, I'm not, I'm not even representing you, Saul, because you're, you're a coward. Right? I represent the Lord who comes to save cowards. By the way, if you read the story, it says that the children of Israel are hiding and scared. If you want to know where y'all are in the story, we're the children of Israel, by the way. We're not David at all in this story. We're the children of Israel. And so... If you understand about ancient Near Eastern warfare, at times they would have, because they didn't want to lose a bunch of their people, because they weren't very big anyhow, they would have a champion fight a champion. So Goliath is the, is the champion uh, for the uh, Philistines, yeah. Or if you're my scholar, guys are like, the Philistines. Like they had to just pronounce it differently because they want to sound like they were smart. They're the Philistines. So at the Philistines, they, they have their champion. So God's like, so their champion is a guy who's, you know, is it literally he's a giant. He just dominates everyone. He's 95-0 and 0 on his record. He's the kind of guy you'd have a champion. Who is God's champion? A little wimpy kid with a slingshot. It's almost ridiculous. And God's trying to show you, listen, I'm not going to beat you with David. I'm going to beat you with me. That's all David knows. I, that's why he doesn't take armor. He wants to, God's trying to show how ridiculous the world's power is over his power. So what, this, is the, this is the enemy that Israel can't defeat. So how does God protect his people? Go back to Genesis 1. They're going to try to snuff out Israel. You can't snuff out Israel. In fact, I'm going to bring up my own champion, a champion who's a servant to me, who's just a little boy, and he won't win like you think he wins. And what does he do? He just slings his shot, does his slingshot, kills him, cuts his head off. Now we're done. It's like that. It's not a fight when it comes to God. And what does he do? God raises up a champion to defeat an enemy that God's people can't defeat. Why do you think Jesus is called the son of David? God raises up someone else, himself in the person of his son, to go to a cross to defeat enemies we cannot defeat, sin, death, and hell. Period. That's, why, that's what this is an echo of. But see, when you preach it like that, guess who gets to be the hero? Not us. Jesus gets to be the hero. And now people are leaving the church going, wow, uh, it's not who me, I mean, uh, it's not all about me. It's about how great Jesus is. Now what you've done for their heart, you've made their heart bigger by doing what? By talking about David and Goliath. Yeah, by talking about David and Goliath. Why? Because in talking about David and Goliath, I'm giving you to the bigger story why Jesus is the ultimate person here. That changes everything in preaching. So, in fact, because we don't have much time, I'm going to skip. I got a friend of mine. Uh, he probably won't be, probably doesn't think of himself as a friend of mine now if I show this video, but I'm not going to do it because, yeah, we'll just skip him. Uh, that's basically what his sermon was, 
was another one of those things where you take a story, you don't care about its context, and you don't make it about Jesus. You just make Joseph, for example, he did Joseph. He's like, Joseph had a dream. All you got, all y'all have a dream. In this dreams, God's going to make y'all popular. Do you want to see it? No, you don't. <laughs> and it's a ruining of the text, right? Let me tell you the deadly bees here. When you preach the Bible like this, be like. These are the three deadly bees. This is, now, this is straight up from chapel. Uh, be like. Follow this example. <clears throat> Again, what's the problem if you say, be like this guy? Yeah, when you do that character study on David, you're going to have to skip a lot of stuff. Be good. This is, the, this is the gospel. I grew up in West Texas. This is the gospel of West Texas. Uh, usually the gospel of the deep south. Be good. Don't drink, smoke, or chew. Day girls that do. That was, the, that was the preaching I got when I was little. Yeah, don't date girls that do. That's right. This is essentially save yourself. I can be good enough for God. What happens is this makes you really self-righteous and legalistic. Uh, finally, be more disciplined. Uh, pray. This is, the, this is the gospel of sweat equity, the gospel of more. Pray more, read the Bible more, go to church more, give more. In other words, you just sanctify yourself. Um, now, someone's going to say, can I ever do any of this stuff? I think you can, but you've got to be careful about it. Uh, so someone will say this. B messages are not wrong in themselves. They are wrong by themselves. So you can do a character study. You just have to make sure ultimately we're framing them in light of Jesus. So one of the ways I would actually do a character study is not how good they were, but how bad they were. Because sometimes you can inspire people just as much by showing them their brokenness and their successes because you've got people that don't feel that they can succeed at anything. Well, why don't you show people in the person of David and Abraham and Delilah and all these other people that God uses broken people to do great things? For his kingdom. That's actually pretty inspiring to me, unless you just want to talk to rock stars all the time, of which there are none. So, B messages aren't wrong in themselves, but if you do it by itself, that's where you screw it up. So, someone says this, right? Well, so, all right, Yance, do we ever deal with behavior in our sermons? Yes, you do. All right, I got it. I'm gonna, let me just move this forward. Here's what I tell people you can do moral exhortation, it's all throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testament. Just make sure you frame it within the gospel. This is what we already see in the Bible. When people say, but Yancey, look at all the moral exhortation in, the, in like the, the epistles of the New Testament. You need to understand, those aren't sermons. They are letters. And those letters were to be read in their entirety, from start to finish. And so, yeah, I know it talks about how you ought to have good kids here, but you see in the context of this letter was given, like Romans? Romans 1 through 11 is all the theology of the gospel. Then it says, therefore... Based on that, you can do these things. So he spent 11 chapters talking about the gospel of Jesus before he got to his practical stuff. That's in every New Testament epistle, practically. So uh, even like this, um, husbands, love your wives. It's a practical exhortation. How do you know that it's encased in the gospel? That one's an easy one. As Christ loved the church, tied it to the gospel. My favorite deals is in, I think it's in, I think it's in Acts, then it's in Galatians. Y'all, y'all can correct me, please, because I'm, I'm just, just kind of shooting from the hip here. All right, so remember that scene where Peter is eating with, he's, he's at the cafeteria, and he's eating with his Gentile guys, and they're having crawdads, and, you know, they're eating some good Cajun food, because it's all the stuff he couldn't eat because he was a Jew, and Jesus freed us up. And he was like, hey, man, go, go, eat, go eat some, you know, fajitas and shrimp and all this stuff. So he's eating, and all of a sudden, the kind of the, the really headstrong legalistic Jewish brothers come in, and they see him doing it, and, and Peter's like, oh, man. So he goes over and totally disses the Gentile guys and goes and eat with the, the Jewish friends, and he won't eat with them anymore. He, he only wants to eat kosher. And what I love is that Paul, 
Paul is like on his, Paul is just, I almost want to call him a cage phaser. Like he got a, he's so, in, he's so on the gospel right now that you ought to just stick him in a cage. He's just going to make everyone mad because he's just so passionate. But what I love about it is that he hears that Peter did that. And so he confronts Peter publicly. And we're talking like, this is Mortal Kombat 12, right? This is like fight because you have two apostles going after each other. But here's what's amazing what he says to him. So essentially what he's doing is like he's not, he's, he's, Peter is not wanting to eat with his Gentile brothers because essentially he's acting like a racist. And notice what Paul said. Paul confronts me. He, he doesn't say stop being a racist because that would seem obvious. Don't be, he doesn't say that. You know, y'all remember what he says to him? He says, you are not walking in step with the gospel. <laughs> Man. So apparently, if you know the gospel well and you're living it out, you won't divide among racial lines. But for Paul, he's like, let's go to the heart of it. I don't need you to be less racist. I need you to be more about the gospel. Because if you were more about the gospel, you'd eat with those friends again. You wouldn't care what those other guys think because the gospel breaks down the barriers between ethnicities and races and economic structures. So that, what did he do? He gave moral exhortation, but he connected it to the gospel. So, so, so what I want to say is gospel-centered preaching, y'all hear this carefully. Gospel-centered preaching is not anti-morals. It's anti-moralism. Okay? Where we're saying that this is the way to be made right with God is doing the right things. No, the gospel frames the behavior because we want to change it from the inside out. Like you guys were talking about earlier. It's heart change, right? So what do I'm going after? The only thing I can do to change your heart is to use the gospel. It's the only weapon God gives me by the power of the Spirit to change the heart. Because we're talking about ultimately worship. So let me do this because I, I think he's... Do we eat at noon? Yeah. Okay, so I, I want to hurry this up so we can have Q&A. Let me give you a way to think about doing gospel-centered preaching, which is just a pattern for you that consider to use, all right? So here's an approach. Here's an approach. All right, so I'm going to give you some technical language, and I'll put it in kind of Yancey language, which is I, I try to put the cookies on the bottom shelf for me. What is the fallen condition focus that requires God's intervention and rescue? What redemptive principles are in the text? And in light of how these principles fit in the overall plan of redemption, how should we respond in our lives? That's a lot of stuff I know. I just threw it at you. So <clears throat> what you're looking at is when I say, where is the fallen condition focus? That's, the, that's actually Brian Chappell's technical language, and I like it. It's like, what's broken here in, in this story? What's broken? Namely in the people. Like, for example, like the, the people are broken. They don't have faith that God will protect them from David and uh, from Goliath. Uh, in other words, and then you could say, what redemptive principles are in the text? Like, is there anything like... Uh, if I'm doing Abraham and Isaac and uh, he's offering a son and God pro provides a substitute, that's a pretty big redemptive principle. Oh, there's a substitute that takes the place of someone's sacrifice. Um, and then again, how should we respond? So I would argue that gospel-centered preaching is eminently practical. You're going to tell people to do stuff, but I'm going to tell you how that looks. So here's what that looks like in its movements. Here's what I want you to get more than anything in the, well, a couple of things, but this is a big one. So, there's three movements that you can do to help make sure that you're having a redemptive or a gospel-centered approach. You start off with it, what's broken? How does God rescue us from that brokenness? And then what is our response? Now, where is the to-dos in this? There are to-dos, where are they? Based on there, where do you see the to-dos? Yeah, obedience, right? That's a to-do. So when people say, I don't want to preach Jesus, well, first of all, that sounds so crazy that you'd say that, but I don't want to preach gospel center. I don't want to make it all about Jesus because I want to, I, they need to obey. Well, we're not saying you don't have to. There's no obedience here. But obedience is the response 
of what? Now, let me tell you what a non-gospel-centered sermon looks like. It does this. It takes that and moves it there. Your marriage is broken. I got five steps to have a better marriage. You need to obey what the Bible says about it. And now, God will bless you. You just started preaching religion. You didn't preach Christianity. Now, that's going to get you a bigger church, probably. That might fire a lot of people up until they can't do this stuff. And then Jesus fails them in their mind. But notice what it is. This is religion. This is not the gospel. Here's your problem. You are the solution based on what the Bible says. And maybe God will bless you if you do enough of the right things. That's straight up legal. That's the stuff that made Paul go crazy in Galatians. So what we're, what we're trying to say is, in other words, you get God's grace if you do what God says, which is not what grace is. I mean, if grace is... Oh, well, I don't who, who's the hero here? You are. It's all up to you. So if people are leaving your congregation, uh, leaving your service on Sunday morning thinking, me, myself, and I, you're missing it. You're missing it. If they think it's about me, myself, like, it's all up to me. Now it's all up to me. I'm telling you, man, I can't tell you how many people I grew up with. That's, that's what they experienced in church. I'm not saying the pastor is meant to preach it that way. I'm saying that's what they got. Maybe you got that. Okay, let's stop this now with church planners. So what we want to do is we want to switch that, right? Here's where we're broken, but God comes in his grace and he rescues us. Oh, man, guess what that does for me? It changes my heart. Now it's like, oh, I want to worship God and obey him. Not because I have to, but because what? I want to. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, your mind, your strength. How do you love God? You love God because he comes in grace to love you first. And when the more that you preach a Jesus that comes to rescue people that don't deserve rescue, that does something for the heart. What that does is it shows that this is... This is all about, some people would say it's this grace-oriented preaching. I don't, it's really just biblical preaching, but yes, grace is the engine that drives your preaching. Now, some people are going to push back on that, but I'll, let me tell you why they shouldn't. So let me, let me just show you a difference. Morality-based versus gospel-centered preaching, these are generalizations, right? But the general idea is you've got to try for Jesus on morality-based. I'm saying, no, you've got to trust in Jesus. I'm calling people more to trust in Jesus, because if you'll trust in Jesus, you'll try for him. Morality-based says it's all about what you do. This is all about what Christ has done for you. I'd rather talk about how good Jesus is than how good you have to be. Morality-based sermons are obedience from obligation or duty. No, no, no. You want to preach where they're obedience from gratitude or love. Do you want your kids to obey you because they have to or because they want to? Well, the answer should be because they want to. Doesn't mean I can't smack my kid around a little bit when he needs to shape up, but nevertheless... Uh, I know I've been smacked around when I was a kid, so I, I, there's sometimes I just, I say smacked around. Since I'm being recorded, that wasn't anything really bad. It was just, you know, I did get a spanking or two, or 12,000 when I was little. All right, morality base says this, you're the hero of the story. Gospel-centered says that God's the hero of the story. Uh, the story's basically about me and morality base. The story's basically about Jesus. Here's the deal. morality base aims primarily at action about what you need to do. Gospel-centered aims primarily at the heart about what God has done for you. And if I can tell you and convince you and show you what God has done for you, I can guarantee you this. I not only get your heart, I'll get your actions as well. Finally, morality-based preaching always stays small with the story. It takes that story and makes some little moral application for you in your life. It really rips the story out of its context. The other one just goes to the big story of redemption. So again, when I preach, I'm going to ask this question. Why did Jesus have to die for this message? You ought to ask that every time you finish your message prep. Why did Jesus have to die for it? See, this helps me keep the main thing the main thing 
So the answer that the here's why because what I'm saying is the answer to my sermon is the grace of God in Jesus. It's not more of you try harder. So again, my sermons aren't. Well, I'm 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 appealing for people to do things. I'm not saying that God is against uh, effort. He's just against earning. So you can have effort. Hey man. Uh, sexual purity, you're going to preach a sermon on that, that's cool. But you better preach in such a way that God comes in grace because he actually comes to redeem the sexually impure as well. So the goodness of the gospel is, is like, listen, if you can't match up, God will still love you. And if you're too good at it, God will humble you. So it humbles the proud and gives grace to the humble. That sounds like the gospel, right? That's what grace does. So some people say this, here's the dominant themes in gospel-centered preaching. It's all about grace. So why, how good is grace? Well, you have grace despite our sin. Assurance and adoption, these are, the, these, are the, these are the doctrines you can teach from that. Grace destroying the guilt of our sin. Grace defeating the power of sin. Grace compelling holiness. Now notice what I, when I'm a gospel-centered preacher, I get to talk about assurance, adoption, justification, forgiveness, sanctification, enablement, worship, and obedience. That's a basically everything. Now here's where people push back a lot. Like Yancey, if you preach grace, the grace of the gospel, people won't want to serve God. You've got to guilt people into that. Um, I'm, I, this is huge because a lot of people don't like this one. Um, they think that they need to be motivated better than just that God loves them even if they sin. And I'm telling you, it's the opposite. Uh, in fact, I'd say it this way. Look at Romans 12, 1 through 2. Just listen to what the Bible says about the motivation. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? It's the first 11 chapters I told you of, of, of Romans. What are the first 11 chapters about? The gospel. Actually, for Paul, he says it's to be justified by faith alone. To present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Notice how practical that is. Like, you need to live holy. Why? Because you are holy. But he starts with what God has done. If we're going to think, speak theologically, your sanctification is rooted in your justification. Which, that to me is the whole key to this. For 2 Corinthians 5.14. Uh, 5, For the love of Christ controls us. What? Don't you mean the guilt of the pastor in the sermon? No. The love of Christ controls us. So notice how they're motivated. Like, I want to serve and love and be faithful to my spouse and be a sound worker at my job because of my love for Jesus. Ah, so what does that mean? We are not holy for God's acceptance. We are holy from it. That's huge. Think of it this way. Uh, for those who are more of my English-minded friends, you like English structure, language structure. An imperative is a command. If you took Greek... An imperative is a command. An indicative is a statement of reality. What, what, what I would say is when we preach in a gospel-centered fashion, what we're saying is that the imperatives, your to-dos, rest on the indicatives, what has already been done. In other words, the do's rest on the done. You do these things, and they rest upon what Jesus has already done for you, not the other way around. right? And not saying, like, if you do these things, you'll be this person. No, you say, no, because of what Jesus has done, you're adopted, you're forgiven, you're secure. Those are indicatives. Those are true. Now, the imperatives, what you're to do, rest upon that. Now, I, now I'm, I'm serving God not out of guilt, but out of gratitude. And that changes everything. Um, so, what I tell people is about this with rules. In gospel-centered approach, the rules don't change, the reasons do. See, I'm still going to talk about the same thing the guy down the street is, who's just going to do kind of a McChurch, where he's got about like all of his five points, and he never mentions Jesus. But he's got five really good things that people need to do. See, I can still talk about those things, but as long as I'm talking that, that this is an affect of the gospel and I can tie it to Jesus in a way that's actually legitimate and with the text, I'm not anti-rules. 
I'm telling you the reasons why I do. I'm not doing these rules to get blessed by God so that he'll love me more and accept me into his kingdom. I'm doing the rules because he has loved me infinitely in Jesus the Christ and has given me all the blessings in the heavenly realm. And because he's done that, I want to follow him. See, I want to, not have to. That's what you want your people to do. You want them to want to follow Jesus, not have to. Jesus never drugs someone behind him. He ne- do you ever see that? He never drugs someone behind him. He said, come follow me. Here's why I think he does those things. So, Titus 2.11. Oh, this is one of my favorite ones. So, do, do you want your young adults to be trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions? Whew, of course I do. And my older folk, too. But notice how it does. For the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God trains us to do these things. See, I don't feel like you have to bend people's arms twist them, if you will. You don't have to guilt them. You show them Jesus and how good he's been for them. You take a guy that struggles with porn, which is a lot of them, maybe yourself, and what you do is you apply the gospel to that person. You say, you know what? There's that scene in the movie. What was that movie with Kirk Cameron in it? Uh, The guy dealt with porn. Yeah, Fireproof. I've never seen it, but someone told me about this scene where um, he's looking at porn and he's trying to fight doing that, right? He's do hard, try more, and He's very sincere, and he sees on his computer that pop-up screen where there's that porn on there, and he's like, he gets a, takes the, his computer, goes out in the backyard, gets a baseball bat, and he, and he hits that, he breaks the computer. And I'm thinking, listen, dude, I'd have taken your computer. Um, because where you need to take that baseball bat's to your heart. Because you're just now going to look at it at your phone now. Or you're going to look at it at your computer in the office after hours. You're going to look at it somewhere else. What you need to do is you, you need to take it to your heart. See, because it's a heart problem. It's not just a behavior problem, it's a heart problem. The only weapon we have to impact the heart is the goodness of God and the gospel. But see, if I could tell the same guy, like, listen, man, if you're sitting there watching porn, I want you to know if Jesus, what would you think if Jesus were right next to you? Now, that's kind of like a camp move in youth camp. Oh, man, I shouldn't be doing that. I feel so guilty. Well, what if I just told you that Jesus loves you as much as you are watching porn than if you weren't watching porn? Like Jesus loves you, that God loves you in Christ exactly the same. Whether you're obeying him now or disobeying him, he still loves you because Jesus has been good for you when you weren't good. That, that, that is an explosion of the soul that only the gospel of grace can do. And now that person will actually want to try to stop doing porn because it doesn't affect that God loves them. In fact, they're blown away that God would still love them even in the midst of their filth. Sounds like grace to me. That's the kind of stuff that you can never law someone into. But grace will demolish those strongholds. For the grace of God has appeared. What does it do? It trains us to renounce ungodliness. It actually, you wind up renouncing ungodliness and worldly passion. Why? Because your heart's grown for a love for God. So, uh, last two things to do here. Two questions to ask when you come to a text now. Oh, I'm going to have more time. All right. So you're going to ask two things. I'm going to give you the text, the kind of technical answers, and I'll give you my answers, and we can be, we can be uh, for the most part, done. What does this text reveal about God's nature or attributes which provide the work of Christ? And what does this text reveal about God's nature or attributes which require the work of Christ? So you're going to go there. It's like, what does this tell us about how has God provided his work here? And what does it require? Here's a better way to ask that or a different way to ask that. What does this text say about me? What does this text say about God? That's how I think about it. When I look at a text, what does this text say about me as a sinner? And what does this text say about God as a Savior? That's it. You come, to your te- you come to each of your texts like that, that'll help you. What does David and Goliath say about me as a sinner? Yep, I'm the guy in the corner because I can't beat those enemies. What does it say about God? He's a Savior who brings his own champion to do what I could never do. That sounds like a sermon you could preach. 
Uh, we can skip that. All right, so here's my, here's my last deal. We're going to watch a video, and I'm done. We can do some questions here. I'll watch a video, and I'll give you a statement. Uh, so here's what I want. Here's my hope for you guys, right? So listen, you, you, can, you can fix this stuff if you've not already fixed it. Here's how I did it for me. I just had to, if you, if you, if you live out the gospel, here's what you're really okay with. You're okay with repenting. Repenting is not a bad thing. Repenting is something we should do. Luther once said, all of life is repentance. So I just repented. I'm still repenting. But like, these are the things that I wanted to repent of my preaching. So much so that I, I wrote a book on some of this stuff. I mean, I've, that's changed my life. And I think our church has been immensely blessed by our whole church's commitment to... By the way, I don't want... Here's one of the things that usually happens to a lot of churches. They have gospel-centered pulpits and they have uh, law-centered children's ministries. So fix it. Fix it. Because some of the worst things is children's ministry stuff because it really is Sesame Street with little Jesus dust sprinkled on it. So once you guys get convicted and repent of how, like, this is how we're going, I'm going to preach with Jesus at the center of it, go pick up your student ministry and children's ministry stuff, and then you're going to have to have them repent as well because it's just, it's a wash in moralism. It's not even funny. So I'm just giving you a heads up. All right? Here's the thing. I want you to do this. Let's give our congregants the only thing we can give them the gospel. Give good news. Don't give good advice. Right? You don't have to look far. It's found on every page of the Bible. Anyone can get good advice. Listen, your little kid is watching Dora the Explorer when she was on TV or whatever it is now. They're getting good advice all the time. Don't cheat. Don't steal. Be loving. Accept other people. I mean, we hear that stuff all the time. Don't let church be one more place they can hear the same stuff. Let them hear the good news of the gospel. I can promise you, they're not going to hear that anywhere else. They're not going to hear it anywhere else. And it will be the thing that will change their life. Uh, if, if not, then you're just preaching what any cult or self-help group can preach. Don't do that. Don't do that. So I want to get you guys now. Uh, I wish someone had got me earlier. Uh, let me do this. I'm going to end with a, a video. Tim Keller has this really awesome video that I just love where he talks about the impulse of the gospel throughout the whole Bible. I just think it's inspirational. I like it. Then I want to tell you about my, one of my favorite preachers of all time, a little story about Spurgeon, and then we can do some Q&A, and then we can eat some barbecue. Okay? Just, just feel it. There you go. That's right. That's right. So I just want this video, just feel it. Don't try to think through it. Just feel it. Like, Lord, can this be true in my preaching? Here we go. Give it a second. Just to minister to your own soul. What kind of preaching ministry will I have? The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac, the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph, 
who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Mm. There is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There is a true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace but lost the ultimate heavenly one. Who didn't just risk his life but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There is a true and better Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true land, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. See, there's something about that. When I watch a video like that, it moves me because uh, you all have, well have been rescued by this same great king. And when we preach in such a way where we show the people that king in his glory and splendor, it's not only good for your people. I promise you, it'll be good for you. Those are the sermons you come away from. I know there's things that can disappoint you. You want to grow. But if you felt like you showed the people Jesus... It does something for you. People think preaching is a spiritual formation thing for the people. It is, but it is also for the pastor. Um, my favorite thing about my preaching is that it shapes my own soul. So uh, with that said, uh, here's the question I'll ask you, I'll leave you with. To whom will you lead them and with whom will you leave them? I would just beg of you guys, lead them to the Christ who has been crucified and lead them or leave them with that. So when they walk out the door, they're not thinking, ah, me, myself, and I, they're thinking... How great is Jesus? Here's the story I want to leave you with. Um, so Spurgeon is one of my heroes as a preacher. I named my middle son after him, my middle son Haddon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, his name. So I took the middle part of that. <clears throat> and um, Arnold Dallimore in a biography on Spurgeon writes about this episode. It was fascinating to me. So just so you know, this is where he preached. Um, you can't see him. It's just, it's not a really good resolution here, but Spurgeon would be right here. And he preached in a room and he had no amplification. It just, it's just his voice could carry like that. That's just amazing to me. I mean, my voice gets hoarse after three services and I don't know how many he did, but he'd have, you know, thousands of people in this room at Metropolitan uh, Tabernacle. So <clears throat> in the 1880s, uh, I, I may just read it to you. A group of American ministers visited England prompted especially by a desire to hear some of the most celebrated preachers of the land in England. And on Sunday morning, they attended City Temple where Dr. Joseph Parker was the pastor. Now, 2,000 people filled the building, and Parker's forceful personality dominated the service. His voice was commanding, his language descriptive, his, his imagination lively, his manner animated. And the sermon was scriptural. The congregation hung upon his words. And the Americans came away saying, What a wonderful preacher is Joseph Parker. In the evening, they went to hear Spurgeon. 
at the Metropolitan Tabernacle here. The building was much larger than the city temple. The congregation was more than twice the size of Parker's. And Spurgeon's voice was much more expressive and moving and his oratory noticeably superior, but they forgot all about it. They soon forgot all about the great building, the immense congregation, the magnificent voice. They had even overlooked their intention to compare the various features of the two preachers. And when the service was over, they found themselves saying, what a wonderful Savior is Jesus Christ. Mm. Mm. I've probably said that story a hundred times, and it still moves me almost to tears each time. That is my hope for me. Forget y'all. That's my hope for me. I want to have, I'm in year 21 of being at the same church that I've wanted to be at, um, to have real roots, to make a real dent. And I wanted my preaching ministry to be just like Spurgeon's in that sense, that when people walk out, they're not saying uh, who, uh, you know, me, myself, and I, or Yancey Arrington is a great preacher. I want them walking out going, Jesus is a great Savior. Because when they leave, They'll come back. And when their kids grow up believing that, they won't, they won't ditch the church when they get to college. They'll be committed to his bride because they're already in love. So uh, that's my person. Now, now it's not no more forget y'all. Now I want to include y'all in that. Let's have churches that have been planted in Houston and really around the world that turns the tide on this androcentric, uh, commercialized, suburbanite, rich young ruler preaching, which just generates a lot of heat but no light. That it's a lot of crowds, but no congregations. Let's just have, listen, I, if God gives you a mega church, God bless you, man. I, I want churches to be as big as God wants them to be. If the preaching of the word is true, I want them even bigger, right? But let's have people leave your churches going, what a great Savior is Jesus. That's why we're about gospel-centered preaching. So, gentlemen, thank you. It's 1122. We've got more than enough time to break. You're more than free to, we'll do some Q&A if you like it. Uh, 